Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is back. And so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. In Philadelphia, live from the Tasty Cake Studios, the Phillies play here. Sports Radio 94, WIP, and Odyssey Station. Morning, everybody. Sunday morning in the Delaware Valley. I'm Glenn Mack, now joined by Ray Dinger. And, Ray, I want to open this show by saying you can't leave. <laughs> now, why would that be? Well, here's why. Who, who am I going to listen to? Who is going to be my voice of reason when I get caught in the excitement of an exciting off season and start to think, hey, you know what? This is the year, and 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 before the season, right? <laughs> I, can't, I can't, pardon me for laughing, but I remember how you were during spring training. I remember how you were during all those signings, looking looking what a season this was going to be for the Phillies. Yeah, I warned you. Well, this is my point. Okay, I was excited about the Phillies prospects, uh, not not young prospects, prospects for the season. I thought the. The late additions of Schwarber and Castellanos was going to improve the offense to the degree that this team was going to win 90 games this year, Ray, and really contend for a playoff spot. I mean, they're they're handing out more playoff spots in baseball than they are in the NHL, so that didn't seem unreasonable to me. Mm -hmm. And here we are, not even at the end of May. Right. And this team is close to double digits out. They stink, Ray. (laughs) They're unwatchable except that i watch him well yesterday i listened on the radio as i actually spent a lot of time preparing this show it is not just that they lose far too often it is the way they lose that is mind-numbingly infuriated so let's go through last night okay um must we after a drought in which they would they score two runs in the last 42 innings something like that mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. you get a little early offensive explosion the 1-1, and it's swung on, hit well. Left center field, looking up, Ballinger, and it's gone over the angled wall. And Kyle Schwarber crushes one just to the left of the batter's eye. It's his 10th home run of the season. And the Phillies now lead it 4-1. to You hear Scott Fransky there? Yeah. Right? It's all going to be good tonight. Scott was genuinely excited. <laughs> And so was I. It was looking good, Ray, right there. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, and then the Dodgers score the next six runs, and then the bats go silent, and then 
Again, too many guys are swinging from their ankles for home runs. Nobody knows how to hit with two strikes on this stinking team. The other teams seem to be able to hit with two strikes. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Okay. Let's talk about Aaron Nola, who, who went from ace to bum in one pitch. <laughs> two strikes. I will just say this. Mm-hmm. It is fortunate, not for us, but it is fortunate for Larry Anderson that he is limited to doing only 40 games this year. Yeah, that's probably a good thing. It's probably, I mean, for his, you're right, for his sake, not for ours. I would, li- I would I'd take Larry 162 games a year, but I understand for his sanity, it's probably a good schedule. Aaron Nola, well, here, we'll just play one of many times that I was pulling out what little hair I have. The pitch swung on and belted to left, and that'll tie the game. Why? Curveball and Betts hits it out. Because that first strikeout wasn't good enough. Ninth homer of the season for Mookie Betts. The game is tied 1 1. <laughs> you heard Larry? I did. I did. <laughs> he, can say, he can say more without using words, just sounds. I mean, it's just. <laughs> it's radio. <laughs> it is. It is so good. It is so good. And those of us that know. Know Larry from his playing days and know what he was like back then. I mean, you just you just know. I mean, I can anticipate as soon as something happens, I go. I know what Larry's reaction is going to be, and sometimes it won't. He won't even be a full sentence. It'll just be, be a grunt. It'll just be a grunt or a groan. But it, but he speaks for all of us. He does speak for all of us. Nola gives up a home run to Betts in the third inning, with two strikes. He allow, he gives uh, Betts a double, a two run double in the fifth. With two strikes. Mm-hmm. He gives up a home run to Will Smith in the sixth. Finish the sentence. With two strikes. Yes! <laughs> oh, gosh. He, it's so infuriating. And then and, and one more, if I may. Okay. Uh, who is my least favorite player on the Phillies now that Vince Velasquez is no longer here? I would say that would probably be Odubel Herrera. That is correct, Ray. That is correct. So let's, uh, let's go through this. It is the bottom of the seventh last night. Bases loaded. Mm-hmm. Odubel on third. Um, who the heck was up? Boom. Boom yeah. was up. Right. All right. And and uh, here you go. Middle infielders in a couple of steps. Double play depth. Here's the one-two pitch. Swung on. Line towards right field. Bent stutter steps. Comes on. Makes the catch. Odubel tagging. They're sending him home. The throw. He's out. Mookie Betts. Guns down Odubel Herrera for the final out, and the Phillies, with Bryce Harper in the on-deck circle, fail to score with the bases loaded and one out here in the bottom of the seventh. Let me just say, Fransky did that brilliantly. He, he, that's absolutely brilliant because he, he encapsulates everything that's wrong with that play. He tells you every, every, reason, every reason why that was wrong but without ever saying it was wrong. He's just going to lay it out there and let you draw your own conclusions. Right. He says, Bet's coming in, and right. he says, they're going to send him. They're going to send him. <laughs> what the hell is that going on? And then he goes, they're going to send him. He's out. Like, you can tell, all, yeah. the, all that sentence needed was, he's out by 20 feet. Right. Which he was. Right. And then he, then he caps it off by saying, what else is really wrong with it is, and you have Bryce Harper on deck. <laughs> it, it, um, I'm with you on this. I mean, this team is four games under 500 right now, and they're a full eight behind the Mets. And 
you hear people say, "Oh, come on, it's it's early, it's early." It, it, uh, what was Yogi Berra's line? <laughs> it's getting it's getting late early, and it is. You know, I mean, look, we're we're at the quarter pole now. You know, next week is Memorial Day. That's kind of the first time when you really start saying the standings matter, and you're eating dust right now for this team. And I, and, you know, early, early. I don't want to hear early with the way this team's playing. They're giving away too many games and doing it. And, do, and doing it, in this case, in stupid, stupid ways. Stupid. I mean, there's no the, – uh, the idea that what Dusty Woth – unless Herrera went on his own, which – You know what? Who knows? I mean, but if Wathen sent him, it's plenty ridiculous. Plenty of blame for both of those guys. Yeah, of course. You know, Wathen is a poor third base coach who seems to have time distance problems, mm-hmm. right? I mean, depth perception, whatever he is. This is not the first time it's happened. And Odubel is simply the dumbest player to wear the pinstripes in 30 years. And here's uh, – you know what else? He's not fast. No, he's not. No, I mean, people have this idea that he's like this well, he plays center field, fast so he guy. He's fast. not fast. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say he's slow. But his, his hat his, falls off. Yeah, his so. speed is average. But, I mean, he's not, he's not a guy you're going to take chances with on the bases, or at least you shouldn't. No, no. So, so, so what do I want to say? Um, by the way, and in the, uh, continuing in those circumstances, Mookie Betts is a five-time Gold Glover. He's a great, he's a great player. <laughs> You're running on Mookie Betts, right? I, I, I wanted to get that in there. Um, I, I, it, it drives me crazy. Um, well, the manager was okay with it. Oh, okay, so let's do that. Okay, there you go. I'm glad you brought that up. End of the game afterward. Joe Girardi, as usual, low energy. News conference. Uh, well, he was asked if he had a problem with that particular with play. with uh, right? with Dusty sending Odubel in okay. there. Uh, here you go. I'm, I'm I'm okay with it. You know, um, you know, Betts makes a perfect throw. Betts a good outfielder, there's no doubt about it. The ball's probably a little shorter, and, and it's a little bit more to shoe top. It's probably a little bit more difficult, but it didn't quite get down there. So I'm okay with it. Interpret, please. <laughs> <laughs> Do me a favor. Explain. Explain, explain what part of it he should have been okay with. Well, he's not right in any, in any, in any aspect of the answer. But he's, he, he doesn't want to hang his third base coach out to dry. That's basically what it comes to. He's, he's covering for his third base coach. But it's, it, was a, it was a dumb, dumb play. Um, and compounding it is the fact that if you just hold him at third base, you're bringing up Bryce Harper to hit with the bases loaded. Okay? Is, isn't that a better alternative than sending a double Herrera running on Mookie Betts? I mean, these are your two choices. These are the two things that can happen. You can you can run Odubel Herrera on Mookie Betts, okay, or you can hold him at third and let Bryce Harper come up with the bases loaded. But but your manager, uh, nah, I'm okay with it. I mean, I'm sh- I, I, I share I your frustration. Be, I don't want to be bothered by his tone of voice because whatever, it's a long day. He's being interviewed. By the way, in other news, the game was only three hours and fifty-seven minutes. So. Yes. It was slow torture. They didn't get, you know, they didn't, well, the get, Dodgers a, they didn't get a hit after. They that. ran eight pitchers out there. Yeah, I know. I it was their, bu- it was one of their bullpen games. I know, and I hate that part of baseball. It's like, oh, somebody knew, somebody knew. Uh, anyway, so it was just slow torture that game last night. But here's the thing, Ray. You're, I don't want to say you're without excitement because you do get excited about stuff. But you're the guy, you're my voice of reason. Mm. Okay. Okay. I can get emotional about this stuff, and I can get carried away about this stuff. It's happened. Well, you're supposed to. That's part of the job. I know, but the other part of the job, it's like, a, you know, the angel on the shoulder, the devil on the shoulder. You're the guy. You're the angel, I guess. Whatever you are, you're the guy who says, easy now. 
And by the way, one of my favorite Ray expressions, big boy. <laughs> Relax, big boy. Relax. There you go. That. Yeah. I need that. Maybe I just have to record it on my phone and then just play it every once in a while. Um, I need you to make me not do that. I'm going to now, Ray, tell you the players that annoy me most on the Philadelphia Phillies. Okay. All right. How much time do we have? There's, I'm going to just I'm going to limit it to my top. Three. Oh, okay. Four. I'm going to limit it to my top four. I could keep going, but I'm going to limit it to my top four. Okay. Mm-hmm. Number one, Odubel Herrera, who has no business being on this team again anymore after they got rid of him and they brought him back. Then he had the domestic violence thing, and then they got rid of him, and then they brought him back. What is he doing here? Why is he freaking here? It is such a sign of failure of ownership that he's here. I know Moniak got hurt. Oh, there you go. You just answered your own question. Okay, and I know that Kingery didn't pan out, and I know that um, – who's the other center fielder uh, that they had? Uh, Veerling. Veerling is not a major leaguer. Mm -hmm. But we're going back to this same – Drek again? Mm, apparently so. Which leads me to the second guy who annoys me, which is the other, the, the flip side of that coin, Roman Quinn, who's another dumb player, who's a fast guy, who swing, who has not learned after all these years that you don't swing from the heels. Right. I got to watch another summer of these guys. They finally get li- rid of Velasquez after seven years. He's not going to besmirch my summer, and I got to watch these two jamokes. <laughs> all right? So well, I, on, the good, on the good side, Mickey Moniak is healing. And, yeah, and we'll be back. If, if all my hopes are placed that's, in Mickey Moniak. That's what your season's come down to. It's all like, riding on Mickey Moniak. Oh, man. All right. Uh, annoyance number three. And I loved this guy, Aaron Nola, mm-hmm. who I used to drive up to Reading to watch him play minor league games. I know you did. And 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 he was, what, second or third in the Cy Young a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and, you know, had a career. And now he's just... Well, I guess I shouldn't have thrown that ball with two strikes on the hitter. <laughs> Remember when we interviewed him a couple times before the season? Yeah, we did. You're leaving now, so we can tell all these stories. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he does a deal with a, with a brewery, and, and he's, a, he's a nice guy, but it's like, hey, you want him for an interview? It's like, sure, you know, Aaron Nola. Hey, right he's before Ar- the season. Aaron Nola, of course. Yeah, right before the season. And we did it one year, and, and we talked to him, and Ray – I know it's cliche to say trying to get something interesting is like pulling teeth, but this was like full orthodontia. Yeah. I felt like we woke him up. I felt like he was like an, we we woke him out of a sound sleep. At and least that's how he sounded. And if I do remember, we did record the interview ahead of time at like 1 in the afternoon. Right. So if we woke him up, well, maybe he was napping. And then the next year they brought it back, and we figured he, he can't be that bad. Right. We'll give it another try. How was that one? I think worse. <laughs> I mean, you know why it was worse because I had the temerity to say, you know, you really uh, pitched poorly. I I don't think I said it that way, but, you know, your your season kind of went south in in September. uh, You know, if you you did anything in the offseason, try to prevent that from happening again. He said, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. It was like, well, the 565 ERA after August 15th. I don't think so. And then he was offered to us the next year, and we said, uh, nah. We we passed. (laughs) We'll pass. It's true. But, you know, I mean, uh, for all the frustration with him, he is still a big key to this team. I mean, because you know he has the ability to be a really good pitcher. Thus, how he annoys me, and I would venture to say Larry Anderson. Do you realize, I just just looked this up last night. I thought, how how long, I know he has one win. 
When was it? Opening day. He hasn't won a game since opening day. The Phillies, and, and if oh, you look at gosh. if you look at the stat, oh. they have there's a there's a, a line you can go on, and yeah. it'll tell you obviously his one loss record. That's obvious. But they will also there's also a stat out there. What is the team's record in games that he starts? Mm-hmm. Okay, the Phillies are one in eight. Yeah. in his start, and I bet you they had the lead in almost all those games. It seemed like it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, me and, and Larry Anderson, I think, share the, the annoyance over Aaron Nola. Okay. Is there anybody else? There's one more. Okay. Uh, and it's, that would be Jose Alvarado, who every time oh, yeah, he comes please. in, yeah. I know it's just going to explode. I mean, he's sort of a metaphor for the entire, you know, Brad Hand, Connor Brogdon, Jerry's Familia, him I can't stand. Um, like, you know, all of those guys. They just, last night they came in. Hold on. I wrote this, this stat down. Uh, they went through five relievers. Uh, well, I don't know. I think they allowed 12 base runners, those five relievers, in like three innings or something. Mm-hmm. It was just, just terrible. So that's it. And then Girardi, who I said at the beginning of the month, I don't know if he's going to make it through May. Well, we're, we're nearing the end. Today's the 22nd. I don't see management. I, I don't hear any more rumblings. You got any? No. Okay. So I just want to close this. and we're, I want to go to the phones. 215-592-9494. Ray, mm-hmm. uh, you're retiring after next week, and I respect that. And, you know, I'm going to miss you big time, but I appreciate that it's time for you to move on to the next phase of your life. But you have to call me anytime. You know I get into the mood where it's like, oh, this Phillies team is going to be playoff bound. Okay. Reality check. Yes. Yeah. You know what? Let's just download that keep, on my phone. Keep that. Keep that handy, Dan. Yeah. Keep that handy. Dan, let me give you my phone and just put that on my phone and, and just like that'll be when Ray calls. That's the ringer. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. How I, you, I, let me just offer this as a note of caution. Yeah. For everything you said, and it's you're 100 percent right on everything that you've said to this point. I have to tell you, you're kind of creeping in that direction with the Eagles. No, 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 no. I'm the one that said to everybody, no, no, I'm the one that said to everybody, we discussed this yesterday. I think they improved a lot in the offseason, but when I hear people say, like, oh, this is a Super Bowl team, it's like, well, that's No, 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 I'm not saying you're going that far. Oh. I'm not saying you're going, I'm not saying. I think they're better. I'm not saying you're going Super Bowl crazy on it, which, no, I think which, some, pe- which some people are. Yeah, yeah, I see that a lot. Right, 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 right. No, no, I think they're better than last year, but, you know, I, I, with the Eagles having lived through Dream Team, I'm definitely not going there. And what I'm about to say, for whatever reason, uh, the people who are like Jalen Hurts are going to be offended by this. We have to see if Jalen Hurts is a big time quarterback. Sure. We don't. Well, I understand, and I know that you do. But there are people who, when you say this, like, "Oh, you hate Jalen Hurts," I don't. I actually like Jalen Hurts, and I'm rooting for him. There's a lot we still need to see before I can decide that, hey, this is a team that's going to be all that. Right. So. We had a caller yesterday that um, referenced Jalen Hurts and said, well, we have, to see, we have to see this year if he's a good quarterback. And I said, no, he is a good – right now he's a good quarterback. I mean, right now he's I – mean, if you put him in the, in the pantheon of current quarterbacks, you were looking at 32 starters, you know, he's somewhere – 15-ish. Yeah, I think in the middle. Okay, I mean, fine. I mean, and which to me is pretty good. I, I was you know, but I'm, but uh, yeah. but if you're talking about a team that is that people are now beginning to talk about odds-on favorite to win the division, maybe a challenger to win the conference, 
then your quarterback has to be better than I good. I agree, and I'm not going there with Eagles. Okay. So, you know. I would say, okay, in that case, Although, I'd say you're in the right place. Uh, let me just say something. Yeah. Check back with me in August. That's what I'm afraid of. I mean, this is May. If this team, if, this Philly, if the Phillies go completely south here over these uh, next couple of months, may. then all of a sudden the Eagles are going to start looking even better to you. Well, I, I can't wed myself to the Flyers now, can I? So, it's, you know. No. And the no. Sixers, please. Oh, all, the- all these years, all these processes, all everything, it's like, Oh, out in the second round. Well, that's new. How about this? How about this? I, I was watching. I was watching the final game of the playoffs with them, and we spent so much time talking about Ben Simmons and all of that. And I don't. I really don't want to go back there again. Well, but good, new, good news is you never have to again. But didn't it strike you as? Or did you have the same feeling I did that watching the fourth quarter of that final game against Miami, and James Harden isn't shooting the ball? Yeah. That oh, yeah. I'm struck by the irony that, wow, yeah, we traded Ben Simmons, For, yeah, and we got back Ben Simmons. Yeah, a guy won't shoot the ball. Yeah, a guy, a guy, a, a guy handling the ball but won't shoot it in the fourth quarter. Yeah, we're I mean, right back where we started. Let's get a call up here. Our pal Jack from Santa Barbara. Last chance to talk to Ray, Jack. Yeah, yes, my man, and you're going to be busy teeing up training camp because. <laughs> I don't see a whole lot else happening all summer in Philly. No, right? it's yeah, it's it's yeah. I, I need to take about a three month vacation after next week. Well, but you're you're the you're the quintessential MC, so I, I'm sitting in on it. Ray's retiring, but I'm not going anywhere, Glenn. I appreciate that. <laughs> nor nor am I. <laughs> so Ray, after seeing you at the play, I go down the shore and I'm sitting on the porch in Ventnor quintessential you know jersey shore and i'm at my best friend's place there and the neighbor comes over really friendly man and he had met me once before and i told him i was at the play i told him i had seen glenn glenn he knows you and then he said then he says to me uh, because he worked with you at the Inquirer, but then he's connected to Ray through mm-hmm. the Daily News. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, yeah, I was the Eagles photographer and eventually became the photo editor. And he said he's really good friends with you. So I met, you know, you know who I'm talking about? Uh, I'm not sure. It, it, uh, the guy who's been Eagles chief Eagles photographer since 1970 is Ed Mahan, but he never worked for either of the papers. No, this guy became the photo editor while you were still at the Daily News. Michael oh, Michael, Michael Mercanti, okay, right. Yeah, yeah. So so my whole world came together right there with, with WIP and the friendship, and you're moving on, and here I meet Michael, and he goes, oh, yeah, Ray's a really good friend. So Nice. So he is he, I, he's really, he is a good friend and a – Terrific photographer, and you're right. He did he did move on to become photo editor, which was kind of a loss. He should have, when we lost him as a photographer, and he became part of management. We lost a great photographer. He was really really good. Yeah, he said he seemed like one of your right hand men. He was. You know? He was, and a, and a, and, a, and a really really good photographer. Yeah, talented guy. So, um, my image of you, because Glenn finally got out of you, what TV show you like? Is you sitting at Rittenhouse Square playing your saxophone? So, so, so that's that's the image I'm holding of you in retirement. Okay. Right. Okay, Jack. Thanks, Thanks Jack. very much. Do you remember when um, 
during the pandemic, we were just goofing around one day, and, and I said that I had started to teach myself to play the ukulele during the pandemic because I did because it was like every you know it's like people were making sourdough bread and right. everybody was figuring out what to do, and I had a ukulele that I'd bought in Hawaii five years earlier and said like I'm going to play this and mm-hmm. brought it home and stuck it in the closet and never took it out. Right. So I started to learn to play it, which I did for about a month during the pandemic, and we told people on the air that you played the saxophone. Right. And that we were forming a band. Mm-hmm. And people believed it. Yeah, they did. A little <laughs> scary, isn't and our, it? And our friend, and our friend, well, Ray, you're trustworthy. Well, friend, we had built up so much trust with our audience, yeah. they were prepared to believe anything we and said. And our friend Bruce Brackman actually photoshopped you playing the sax, which was really a good picture. Oh, yeah. And I put it on social media, and people are like, well, are you guys going to do a concert? Like, when, when can we see you? So in retirement, Ray, let's make it clear. Are you going to be learning the saxophone? <laughs> no. Okay. But I came in here one time and did the morning show, and Conklin couldn't resist. Uh, and um, they got, uh, they did this whole bit. Angelo set up this whole bit, which, which only he can do, which is, Ray, I see you brought your saxophone with you here today. I see it over there in the corner. Are you really going to play for us today? We would really, I, you know, yeah, because I, a, a lot of people have been asking me, so okay. So... Then they set up this whole thing where they actually, Joe Wechter actually played real saxophone music. I mean, like Boots Randolph right. or somebody. I mean, and and there were people, do, 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 and, do. and there were people who actually believed that sure. that was me playing the saxophone. Indeed, two one five five nine two ninety four ninety four. I told you the other day. So we Ray and I have today. We have next week, uh, and we'll we'll get some calls. I, I apologize to people who want to say goodbye to Ray one last time uh, and and won't, but we'll we'll work calls in. But I did solicit calls on social media, not calls, excuse me, questions for Ray on social media, and I got a million of them. Yeah, so you said. And I'm going to take the best ones and run them by you starting in the next segment. Fair enough. Yeah, got some good ones yesterday. Yeah, and we're going to open with a surprise encounter in the bowels of the Nassau Coliseum. Oh, I remember that day. Yeah. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack, now 94 W. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack, now 94 WIP. Uh, I want to work on something early here, Ray, into the show, because one of the things that I have always appreciated about you, and some of our audience, maybe not all of it has, is you're a hockey guy. You're not just a football guy. You're a hockey guy. Big time. I know. And um, the Flyers are looking at Barry Trotz. Uh, which is which is nice. I assume that has your endorsement. Yes, very much. Okay. I I was very, I was really surprised. I mean, I don't know all the intrigue and everything that was going on with the with uh, with the team, the Islanders. But uh, um, I, as soon as he became available to me, he jumps to the top of the list of candidates. Sure, absolutely. I, I what I want to ask you off of that is, have you ever seen one of the big four franchises in town? Seek as low in public interest as the Flyers are now. Because it really wasn't. The process Sixers didn't because they, they, had, they had a cult following. Right. Um, maybe the, the, what was it, Doug Moe, Freddie Carter. Uh, Sixers. John Lucas, Johnny Davis. <laughs> wow, that, how's that for a quartet? Yeah, it was. Sixers of the like the mid nineties until Croce kind of Croce, saved the ship. Yeah, right. Croce came back and gave him an energy transfusion. But the Flyers are like a division three team in terms of interest and performance. 
Are, are you? Uh... Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think that uh, I, I think this is the worst. I think this in, in terms of just hitting rock bottom. I think this is the worst. I, I really do. I, uh, you know, I, as, as you made the point that I'm, I am a hockey guy, and I am. I, I love hockey. I, tr- I really, really love hockey. And so I've watched some of the playoffs, the Stanley Cup playoffs, and I'm of two minds when I'm watching it. I mean, it, these the Stanley Cup playoffs this year are really, really yeah, they're good. Pretty exciting. I mean, the last round, I think there were like four of the series that went to Game Seven. Yeah, how about Connor McDavid has? Was he got twenty points in nine games yeah. or something? Yeah. Yeah, and so the last series, a whole bunch of the games went to Game Sevens, and the, and three or four of the Game Sevens went to overtime. I mean, it was really dramatic, and it was really great hockey, and I loved watching it. But the whole time I'm watching it, I'm just thinking, God, the Flyers are so far away from. Yeah, this. it's not the same sport. It's not. It's, it's like sport. not the same sport. So on the one hand, I'm enjoying great playoff hockey, but on the other hand, I'm thinking, guys, it's really depressing to think how far away the Flyers really are. Yeah. Okay. So that gets into one of my favorite stories uh, that I want to go. Somebody uh, wrote in. Mike wrote in. I know Ray has had a lot of interaction with the owners in this city. Uh, did he ever have any interactions with the most notorious? His words. Uh, Mr. Ed Snyder, <laughs> which leads to oh boy, did I ever one, one of the best? <laughs> did, did I did I ever? Um, it was a Stanley Cup uh, Stanley Cup Finals. I guess it was eighty, um, and it's the Flyers and the that, that great Islander team, who had not yet won a cup but were going for it. And it was Game Six up at Nassau Coliseum on a Saturday. I'm still writing for the Bulletin, uh, and we go up there to cover the game. And it's a uh, it's a game where. You know, to be fair, the Flyers did get the short end of the officiating in that game. Um, there was a goal that went in; it was deflected in by a high stick, clearly, but the goal was counted. And then there was a, a goal where the the puck clearly left the zone, crossed over the blue line, got picked up by Butch Goring, who then passed it to uh, was it Nice? No, Nystrom nice, nice scored the the winning goal. I'm trying to think who was that scored the the goal. That uh, anyway, it was it was clearly offsides. And uh, is this the Leon, this is the Leon Stickle game. Yes, the Leon Stickle yeah, it's game. Famous, yeah, this, infamous. This is the Leon Stickle game. He he completely blows the offsides. Islanders are offsides. I'm, I'm not by a little. I mean by by a couple of feet. And he doesn't see it. Uh, play continues. Islanders score a goal, and uh, game goes to overtime, and the Islanders win and win the cup in the process. So, um, game ends, and there's just pandemonium in the Nassau Coliseum, and people are just going crazy, as you would expect. They've just won the Stanley Cup. And so I leave the press box, and now I'm going to try to get to the locker rooms. But I really didn't know my way around Nassau Coliseum. Then I get out in the concourse area, and it's just, this, this, it's just chaos. It's anarchy. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to get to the locker room? I don't know where they are. And I see this door across the hall, and it's unmarked, and I just sort of push it open, and I go down this flight of stairs. I figure, okay, I know the locker rooms are below. So I'll get downstairs, and then I'll just find my way from there. Well, it turns out that that door was leading to a a secure, it was a security door to an off-limits restricted area, which I didn't know. I get down to the bottom of the stairs, and who's standing there but Ed Snyder? And Ed Snyder is just livid over what happened, and particularly with the officiating. And at that time, it was the late 70s, and the the Flyers still felt like they were being picked on by by the forces of the NHL, and they were still paying the price of having been the Broad Street bullies, which they really weren't anymore by the late 70s, a little bit of it, but not really. But he felt that that, was, that, that, that that stigma was kind of on them and that the league was out to get them. He really believed that in his heart of hearts. And now, after game six, 
when the officiating has clearly influenced how this game was decided. Ed Snyder is beside himself. He could turn a good shade of red. Beside himself. Uh, and now there's only two people here. It's Ed Snyder and it's me. Uh, and he sees me and he just starts venting. He just starts venting. I mean, all kinds of, I can't begin to repeat what he said, all kinds of profanity, but basically say we got screwed. And he goes through every reason in that game how they got screwed. And I can't really argue with him because I agreed with him for most for the most part. And uh, You got your notebook out? Oh, oh, yeah, I got my notebook out. And I'm, I, I'm, so yeah. he sees that? Oh, yeah, he, well, he knows who I am. He knows who I am, and he's, you know. But in and, his mind, this is not an off-the-record conversation. No, 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 by no, by no means. I mean, he's just, he's got all this pent-up fury, and I just happen to be the guy who walked into the room, okay? And so he just goes off. I didn't even have to ask a question. I mean, he just went off, and he just talked for, he just talked, screamed for 15 minutes straight. Uh, and it culminates with, 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 this, with the statement that the problem with this, you know, this league Scotty Morrison should be shot. Scotty Morrison being? The head of NHL officiating. He's the head of NHL officiating. Scotty Morrison should be shot. And he sees me writing all of this down. And then, okay, then I go into the locker room, get a few quotes from the players, which I really at that point didn't need. I had my column oh, there. Oh, you did. So I run up to the press box, and I call the office, and I say, hey, listen, Ed Snyder just went off, and I was the only one there. Didn't tell them it was an accident. Didn't tell them I got him alone because I got lost. I just said, I got Ed Snyder, and he just went off. So I prepared them. I wrote the story. They ran it across the top of the sports section. And, of course, it got picked up and played all over the country, all over North America. I mean, it was as big in Canada as it was in the States, if not bigger. And, and of course, there was tremendous fallout from it. And I, I really expected, and, and I give Ed Snyder credit for this, I really expected when I wrote it that he's going to take all this back. There's going to be such blowback on this that he's going to say, I never said that. Or he's going, or maybe he won't even say I said it. But what he'll say is, that was all taken out of context. But, oh, I, man, but, yeah. I, but I, kind of thought, I, I kind of thought, this is all going to come back on me. And you know what? And, and believe me, there was blowback from the league office. I mean, Scotty Morrison should be shot. I mean, really? Got fined, Snyder, right? Snyder, got fined? Snyder, got, Snyder got fined. I think he only got fined like 5000 So oh, no. it was the league sort of acknowledging, I think you got a point. It's really kind of the way I read it. But, um, but what's, what Snyder said was, yeah, I, I did say all that. I was not – because people were trying to get him to say he was misquoted. And he said, no, 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 I said all that. I just got real emotional. I thought we got screwed in that game. And I probably said some things I shouldn't have said. But everything that was in there, yeah, I said it. So he bought it. I mean, he owned it. And I give him credit for that. Because a lot of people in that same spot would have just pinned it on me and said, now he made all that stuff up. But Snyder didn't do that. He said what he said, and he stood behind it. It's a great story for so many reasons, right? You got the most interesting story out of it. When you were a sidebar guy, you actually got the best story of the night. Right. Uh, and the fact that you got it because you're walking around like, where the hell's the door? Where, yeah. Where am I going? Yeah. I'll just walk in here. Oh, Ed, are you lost too? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, then you get this great story. Yeah. And uh, the, all the editors, the people back at the paper said, wow, gr that was a great reporting job. <laughs> a great reporting job. The only reason I got it was I got lost at the Nassau Coliseum. <laughs> but great. sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's go to Mike and Yardley. You're on with Ray and Glenn. Hey, Mike. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. It's great to call in, except for the fact this is almost certainly my last opportunity to talk to you guys in this setting. And uh, I'm not going to repeat a lot of the things that 
people been saying to to Ray, uh, you know, about his retirement. But one thing that uh, occurred to me was the first time I met Ray was back in 2010, when he and I were both playing hooky at the Ritz at the Bourse to watch Thirteen Assassins. And uh, oh yeah, hey, that, that was that was a good movie. There weren't too many people in the theater. It might have just been you and me, as a matter of fact. There may have been three or four others, but it was just <laughs> you would be walking out, and I said to you, "What do you think Glenn will think of this movie?" And you gave me fifteen to twenty minutes. We we just talked in the lobby for the longest period of time. I was killing time because I had to catch a train, and I wasn't going anywhere anyway. Um, but. And that shows the generosity of spirit that you have, Ray. And it's something that I think everybody appreciates and recognizes. Um, but to agree with Glenn about this, there are times when somebody says something incredibly foolish and there's a tone in your voice and a slow burn of sarcasm and snark that comes up and we know that Roy is now going to step it's on the, the best. <laughs> and it's the it's, best. And the anticipation is it arrives. You, you oh, said it yeah. very well because you, you, almost, you almost feel it coming through the radio. Yeah. No, I hear it and I know when it's coming. I, my, my radar is out for that. I pick it up almost immediately. And it's, it's great because it's a counterpoint. Yeah. Because, you know, Ray the Gentleman is the one that everybody knows, and just every once in a while, Roy shows up. And it's like uh, I used to say to the kids, it's like Cindy Crawford's mole, that one little imperfection that shows you just how beautiful the person is. Makes it is. all the best. Oh, you are so right. Mike, what a great call. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, that was really good. I'll, I'll miss Ray, but, boy, I'll miss Yo, Ray. Oh, you're going to miss Roy big time. Uh, it's, you're going to miss Roy big it's time. It's like, like just a slow burn. Uh, Ray, you, you don't know anything about football. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's like, listen, I can't do it justice, but I'm going to try. Listen, pal or bub. Chief sometimes. Chief. Listen, chief. Big boy. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And, and then like it's, it's like you're an assassin. All right, I'm going to sneak in one quick question here from one of our listeners. Oh, I like this one. This is David G., uh, I hear Ray uh, talking about going to Reading Terminal Market all the time. Will Ray give his three or four favorite spots in the terminal? Oh, um, yeah, easy, easy. I don't want to rank them, but I'll give you my three. Um, it depends on what time of the day. Uh, if you're there in the morning, there's nothing better than the uh, blueberry pancakes at the uh, Dutch Eating Place, the little circular counter there by Byler's Donuts. There's a circular counter there, and it's all the uh, Pennsylvania Dutch folks and Man, you <laughs> you order the blueberry pancake special with turkey bacon, you're good for the day. <laughs> uh, so that's number one. Um, obviously, uh, Tommy Denick's roast pork sandwiches are just awesome. Phenomenal. They're, they're, they are phenomenal. In, in fact, national magazines have named them the best sandwich in America, and more than once, and justly so. It's great. They are great. The only problem is getting a seat at the counter because it's always crowded. Uh, and I can't tell you how many tourists coming through the market uh, come in there and they're looking around. They're just they're, they're, they don't they don't know where to go. And I will say, do yourself a favor. See that over there, Tommy Denix. Go there, get the roast pork sandwich. You'll love it. And the other one is um, is Herschel's uh, Herschel's yeah. Deli makes the best makes the best Reuben I've ever had. I mean Katz's Deli. I mean the whole Meg Meg Ryan Billy Crystal thing. I mean that's fine for what it is. But the sandwich itself, the sandwich in Katz's doesn't compare to Herschel's Reuben. 
Right in your Glenn Mac now, 94 WIP. We talk with one of your other longtime partners, right, Michael Barkan, at the top of the hour. And I imagine that it's really, you know, all these years, the two people have worked with you the most would be Michael and me. No question. Yeah, yeah no question. I mean, I, with Michael, from going all the way back to Channel 3 days in the 80s, when I started doing stuff at Channel 3 during the newspaper strike, and then with you after that, I mean, the... I worked with a lot of people in this town, but I haven't worked with anybody as much as I've worked with you two guys. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple uh, questions from listeners. Okay, and then we'll take a call or two. Mike Donnelly, uh, was there? Were you ever approached by the Eagles or any NFL team to work in their front office? No. No. Mm-mm. No. Do you ever think about trying to make the transition? Well, nobody ever offered me one. I mean, if if somebody, if some team had come to me and said they were going to they would offer me a chance to be you know Ernie Accorsi you know a guy that was in newspapers and transitioned over to work for a team um I mean there are there were guys that did that I mean Marty Hurley was the football writer in Washington got hired as a general manager of the Carolina Panthers uh it's happened that newspaper guys have been hired and went over and worked in the front offices of teams if somebody had offered it to me I certainly would have considered it I certainly would have considered it but um that I get that question a lot. Boy, if no. Ernie, of course, he had gone to the Giants and you had gone to work for the Giants, man, our world would have been really different and not in a good way. So I'm glad that didn't. Yeah, it would. It would have been. I honestly it would have been hard for me to go to work for another team. <laughs> if the Eagles had approached me, that that probably that that's one that would have appealed to me. For me to go to work for another team, I don't think that I don't know if that would have had the same appeal. Uh, Harvey asks, in all your times working as a journalist, is there one period during which you were the happiest and most satisfied with your work and life? Uh, I thought that um, thought se- late seventies, early eighties. Uh, I really kind of found my sweet spot. I thought, uh, and it was partly a result of what was happening in town then. I mean, all the teams got good, and everywhere you turned, there was a great story to write. You know, the, the Phillies had signed Pete Rose and were on their way to the World Series. Dick Vermeil had turned the Eagles that, that awful Eagle situation around, and they were they were really good. Uh, Flyers were still playing for the Cup, and the Sixers had Dr. J. Uh, I mean, everywhere you turned, there were great stories. There was great stuff to write, and 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 the Big Five was still the Big Five. I mean, you know, there was really good college basketball here too. So, I mean, that was like the ultimate buffet table for a sports columnist. I mean, every, every day you got up and it wasn't like, Oh God, what am I going to write today? Mm -hmm. I mean, every day you got up and it was a, you know, now it's, it's a tough choice. You know, I've got five good stories. Which one am I going to do? And at that time, um, I was young and I had tremendous energy and I, uh, I, I, I would have written, I would have written seven days a week. I swear to God, I would have, I mean, I would have written there. I, it was almost hard to take a day off Mm -hmm. because I, I loved it so much. Uh, and uh, that was probably that was probably the time. Also, because it had it had the feel of a renaissance. Because what we had been through in Philadelphia in the early part of the '70s had been so bleak and had been so terrible that when they got the, when the teams got it turned around and they all got good at the same time, there was no better time to be a sports columnist anywhere than there was in Philadelphia at the late '70s. Uh, Brandon Kamen, who is now a filmmaker and good at it, says, if I recall from my intern days, remember he used to intern for? Yes. Uh, Ray was never a beer man. Well, he recalls correctly. But if memory holds, there were those rare, rare occasions when he indulged. What, what, what's his favorite drinking beer story? 
Me? Yeah. Oh, I've only had two and a half beers in my life. Oh, it's not the, much of a story. What's the most memorable of the two and a half? Well, I, I mean, I drank two of the beers on a team on an Eagles team charter. Coming oh, you drank two two in the same uh, sitting? Yeah. Oh, for a guy who never drank beer, you probably felt that. I didn't like it that much, but I was just so thirsty. Yeah. But oh, it was it was a season opener. Eagles played in Dallas, and it was God, it was hot. Oh God, was it? Oh, it was so brutally hot. And um, we're. And that, that was when I was still flying with the team, which I soon realized was a bad idea. I sh- writers don't belong with a team charter. Uh, and, but they told me, you know, go ahead, do it. Everybody else did it, so I did. Um, but anyway, we're, we're, we get on the team plane, and I am just so thirsty. God, it's just so hot. And what they were handing out, and they don't do this anymore now for legal reasons, is, is, give, is give out beer and liquor on the plane to the players. Um, and but they did then. And when you got on the plane, they gave you a a plastic bag that had f- four cores beers in it, packed with ice. And when you got on the plane, they would just hand that to you. Everybody that got on the plane. So coaches got it, players got it. So you know, like I, I can't stand there and hold up the line and say, uh, I, I, "Can I have a diet coke?" <laughs> you know. I mean, I, all, it was the it was beer or it was nothing. Yeah. So I took I took the beer and I went to my seat and I was so thirsty. I just fired down the first cores and then drank the second one. You must have, again, people who don't drink will feel it quickly. Yeah. Get a little tipsy? Well, I, I will say this. I wrote faster. I, mean, <laughs> I, I wrote, I wrote maybe, my story. I wrote my story. you stumbled of, upon something. I, I, opened up my, I opened up my portable typewriter, and I started. And I actually wrote fast that day. Not well, but fast. And then the other one was, I, it was a similar thing. I was just really hot. I had played around the golf and went into the clubhouse. And they were pouring beer, and it just looked so good on a hot day. They said, give me one of those. And I only drank half of it. So that's the tale of the two and a half beers. That's good. Warren in Gwynedd Valley joins us. Hey, Warren. Hey, how's it going, Glenn and Ren? Thank, thank, Ray, thank you for taking my call. And I'm actually in Ray's city of Philadelphia today. Mm. Okay. So what's it's up? Your, it's your city. Um, well, I would, wanted to pick up that conversation that we had when um, when we were talking about the the Phillies beating the cover off the ball in uh, Los Angeles. And uh, I said, wait till they can come home to Philadelphia. And the two of you were like, oh, I don't know what he's talking about, but you know, you kind of blew me off and that was fine. And you didn't ask me why I thought that um, when they came home to Philadelphia, that, that they would turn back into who they are. Okay. Enlighten us. Well, it's, it's been an ongoing problem for the Phillies that they just don't seem to trust each other. And, and that seems to be, to me, the underlying feeling that the pitching doesn't support the, the hitting and the hitting doesn't support the pitching. So every time they have this, this back and forth where they have runs, but, but they, don't have, um, they don't have pitching to, to keep the, the, the team in the game, and the other side is they have pitching, but they don't have runs to support them. So they keep going back and forth all these years. And like Glenn said, they have this direct players um, – hope you don't mind me using your word, um, kind of polluting the team where they just can't keep a rhythm. And that was my feeling that, yeah, they can be hot for a couple of games, but they, they don't have any rhythm. They don't trust each other. Uh, they don't have leadership. And until all of these things get cleaned out, that this is the team that we're going to have. So that was my, my thesis for why they would come home and, and be as bad as they, they don't appear when they go out on the road. Yeah, I think they're going to be a team that's going to play in fits and starts. I, I just think that's what they're going to be. Um, but they do have they do have players on here that have a track record. 
I mean, the, the players on this roster, not all of them, but enough of them, have a track record that you, you would expect them to be a team that's going to score runs on the whole. Um, but they, they hit these dry spells. And I, I think one of the problems is, I think a big problem is they don't have a leadoff hitter. You know, and and Girard, as a result, Girardi's just shuffling the batting order like every game trying to find something that works. And it's hard. It's hard. Un- until you develop, and I, I think you kind of used the term continuity or, or flow or, or chemistry or whatever it was you were saying. I think that that's, that's when teams can really hit their stride is when everybody kind of knows the position they're going to play, the, the batting order falls into place, and then, okay, this is what we are. This is who we are. This is how we're going to go out and play. They haven't reached that point yet. They have the players, but they haven't been able to put those players together in a, in a, in a winning kind of combination. And I'll tell you, today, today is not going to be easy. Usually it's Tony Gonsolin, the kid that's pitching for the Dodgers. Yeah, 165 ERA or something. Yeah, he hasn't allowed more than two earned runs in a game in like a month. Yeah. His, his ERA is like one and a half. Dodgers just keep finding guys. They are, they are an amazing organization. I mean, they have guys, and then guys get old, and, you know, Kershaw's breaking down. Well, hey, we got this guy. Mm-hmm. You know. This, oh, guy, this guy is really yeah, good. Cody I mean, Bellinger, you know, because of injuries and whatever, isn't what he panned out to be. Well, that's okay. You know, they got that guy. And they just always have great, great players. Well, they've, they've always been a great scouting organization. I mean, they, they, they have always done a great job of Ooh. scouting and signing players. Oh, I got a great question for you. Here's the, 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 the exit question of this segment. It's from Kathy. Is there any team in any sport that Ray Didinger ap- act- actively, excuse me, roots against? Yankees. Yankees. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, boy, I hope my neighbor isn't listening. The, the gentleman who lives on our floor in our condo yeah. uh, down the hall is a crazy Yankees fan. And I've never told him my disdain for the Yankees. I just kind of humor him. I say, hey, Fred, uh, Yankees, Yankees really playing good. And I just... But I don't tell him that I really have always hated the Yankees. Isn't that part of the fun of being a sports fan? <sighs> yeah, but I don't want to get. I don't want it to. I don't want to become a wedge between our friendship. Uh, you know? okay. I mean, I mean, this Yankee thing is this is serious with him. I mean, he grew up in New York. Right, what, what he's like, he's you? like, he's like deep into his eighties. I mean, he's, a, he, I mean, he's like DiMaggio, Barra, all that stuff. Where his it, his where umbrella does... is a Yankee umbrella. When he when it rains, he's got a, an umbrella with a big Yankee logo on it. Where where does it come from, you? Uh, I just, um, in the, as a kid in the fifties, um, I just, I just found the Yankees, their success bothered me. Uh, the fact that they were just so dominant and the fact that it was like every year it was the Yankees are going to go to the world series. And it was just, it was just like too much. It was like they were too rich and there's an arrogance. There was, there was, it was the whole New York thing, uh, kind of the cult of the, of the, of the Yankee organization. And I, I liked Mantle. I thought Mantle was a very exciting player. I kind of enjoyed watching him. But the whole, you know, we're the Yankees and we're bigger and better than you are just rubbed me the yeah, wrong way. they were General way. Motors back when General Motors was, was General Motors. Yeah. 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 And uh, that, that, that kind of bothered me. And I always remembered my grandmother's story about Phil Rizzuto bunting on Lou Percy. Uh. And so that bothered me, too. <laughs> I mean, come on. You're going to bunt on a guy with, with a, oh, you tell a that guy with a crippled leg. That's great. Okay. 215. 592-9494. We'll get your calls, and we will talk to Michael Barkan. Coming up, Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack now, 94 WIP. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. It is a Saturday morning in the Delaware Valley. I'm Glenn Mack now. He is Ray Dinger, and uh, I think everybody knows kind of the issue of the day is Ray is retiring after, uh, well, one week from today, ending a brilliant 53-year career that I have been privileged to be a part of. Ray has been a tremendous success both 
not both, in newspapers, in radio, and on television. I have been fortunate to be his partner for 21 years. And the other guy who probably reaped the most benefit of that is our pal Michael Barkhan of NBC Sports Philadelphia, who joins us now from his palatial estate in Broomall or Newtown Square. I forget. <laughs> How are you, Michael? I'm joining you from my palatial estate at my desk at NBC Sports. Oh, you're at work. <laughs> there you go. Good, Good morning, gentlemen. How Good morning, Mike. You? How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm great, Ray. I'm great. I've enjoyed the program today as I have for the past 21 years. It's marvelous. What's going on? <laughs> well, I, I want to I get your perspective, as I've been giving my perspective of working with Ray. And I'm going to start with this question. Do you remember uh, the first time you met Ray Diddinger, and what was your sense of that? Um. I do not remember the very first time I met Ray. It was at Channel 3 mm-hmm. and uh, KYW-TV, and Ray was a contributor. And I don't even know how long he had been there, but I arrived at KYW in the sports department in February of 1987. Right. The first piece, Ray did this great piece. I don't know if it, was a, it wasn't during a work stoppage because the Phillies were playing ball, but you remember that piece you did, Ray, when, when – I just remember you had someone throw a baseball over your head, and it was a critique of the way the Phillies were playing, and you were at the vet, mm-hmm. and uh, it got screams. People were just hysterical over it. <laughs> and that's the first time I remember seeing Ray on the air and doing his thing. Goofy stuff, Always huh? struck me as a very nice man and a very kind man and uh, a guy who never, um, unless you were an athlete or a coach, he never judged anybody, and, um, you know, I think, uh, I don't know about a friendship forming right then, but that's the first time that re- that I recall uh, seeing Ray. So you're doing Don Pollock kind of I stuff? I did, yeah. Then? The Phillies were in the midst of a really bad season, and I went down and I did, uh, they were coming up on Fan Appreciation Day, and I did a little skit <laughs> about <laughs> about the things that the Phillies were going to do for you on Fan Appreciation Day, and they had a pitcher named Bruce Ruffin, who has having all kinds yeah. of control problems, like wild pitches. And I said, and, and, I, and I'm on camera when I say this, and if, uh, if, if your ticket gets drawn, you're the lucky fan, you can come down and have a catch with Bruce Ruffin. And, of course, yeah, I had Tom Stotakis was threw the ball like 10 feet over my head, and I went and had to chase it down. <laughs> That's pretty good. But the best, Glenn, was that he actually, you saw the ball go over his head, but then you saw Ray turn around and lope after it, trying to get it. And it was supposedly Bruce Ruffin throwing him the ball. Brilliant. That's brilliant. That's yeah. good stuff. How did um, the uh, the post-game show come together? It was also Tom Stathakis. And uh, Tom, uh, Ray, and I worked together. He, he was essentially the sports director at, at uh, NBC3 or, or Channel 3. Channel 3, right. Um, yeah, and now CBS three, and um, it was Lou Tilly, Yuki Washington, Tom Stathakis, and, and Jim Ruling were in the sports department, and um, and he's the one who, after I left and went to Boston, um, I got a call from him and Jim Cudahy saying, "Hey, we're putting the band back together. You want to come back together?" And we started up Comcast Sportsnet in the, in 1997 in October of 97. And Tom said, we're going to have a, a show, an Eagles postgame show at the time. And um, would you would you like to host it? We're going to have Ray Dittinger uh, be an analyst and, and Brookie and Tom Brookshire is going to be an analyst. And I don't recall, Ray, if we had Johnny Sample at that time. I know Johnny 
was was on the program early, but I don't remember. Yeah, now John just, John wasn't there year one. Year one, when we first went on the air, it was just you, me, and Tom Brookshire. And what? Well, and one other Ray. Who else? And the governor. The, and the governor. Well, the then governor then, the, then mayor. Yeah. Yeah, then mayor. Right. The, but and the mayor had come over from his seat. The first show we did because we started up in October, Glenn. The first show we did was sometime in October, and there was a very hot day, bright, sunshiny day. The gov comes over in a green golf shirt. The collar is all dog-eared. It's, it's button one, button two low, probably. <laughs> His hair's all, you know, he, and, and he sits down. He's burnt to a crisp. You remember that, Ray? He's I remember. Yeah, he was, he was, he was he <laughs> totally burned. Sun, sunburned, sunburned everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that's the first show I remember. And we only did post-games. At home. Now we do pregame, we do postgame, we do a halftime update. Um, we only did postgames, and it was only home postgames. Correct. And then, and Ray, Ray doubted its uh, future success, as I recall, my friend. Is that true? Yeah, I did. I did. I told when, when Statakis came to me and said, we're going to do this show, this Eagles postgame show, will you do it? Um, I said, well, yeah, I'll do it, but you know, nobody's going to watch. I mean, I, I really thought I, I didn't think I had any chance of succeeding because I knew I knew with the restrictions we we couldn't show video, we couldn't show highlights. There were so many things we couldn't do. I mean, we were doing a show where it was just you, me, and Tom sitting at a desk talking, and I said, "Who's going to watch that?" And I, I yeah. so I, I thought, well, give it a try, and I'll you know I'll do I'll be on it, but I don't think it's going to work. And Tom, I remember what Tom said. I remember what Tom said. Tom said, "You're you're right. Probably in most cities, it wouldn't work." He said, but in Philadelphia, the way people feel about football and they feel about the Eagles, it'll work. And he was he, he was right, and I was wrong. So you yeah, guys, I agree. Go ahead. Mike. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I agree with I agree with Tom Stathakis. At the time, my only question was the length of the program. And initially, Glenn, we we went on at 4 p.m. So if the game was over at 4:20 or 4:40, if for some reason it went long, a one o'clock game, we were on at four o'clock while the game. Oh was yeah, still we on. we used to do the post game show on WIP like that. I was doing the post game show in those days, and the game is still going on. And I'm thinking, like, what am I supposed to do? Right. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that, that's, was, yeah. That's nuts. Yeah, and, and it was maddening. And and Brookie would always kind of trail off as he was speaking because. We would be watching the game on the monitor and be we'd be live on the air. And, you know, uh, Randall or Donovan or whomever would, would throw some great pass and Brookie would go, ah! Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> so you, you, you guys have had a lot of uh, other co-hosts over the years. Uh, I'm going to forget some of the names, so I'm going to let you say who they are. One of you guys. Um, oh, oh yeah, I I I, 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 I remember I, yeah. I, I remember him in order. It was it was Brookie first, then it was Johnny Sample, then it was Vaughn Hebron mm-hmm. for maybe six seven who years. Gave, gave you the nickname yeah. Diddy, and he's the one that he's yep. the one that hung Ray Diddy on me. And then uh, and then it was Brian Westbrook, and then we had uh, we had Ike Reese for one year, and we had Trey, Trey Tom- Thomas. We had Trey Thomas for I think like two years, and then uh, mm-hmm. and and then it was Seth and Barrett. So it's that yep. that chair has has changed a lot over the years. By the way, Michael, one of the things yes. that astounds me on a regular basis doing the show with Ray and and just was evidence right now, Ray is older than both you and I, but mm-hmm. his memory is so much better than mine all the time. I was just doing an interview where I said Ray had a photographic memory, and then I called Ray and I said, Ray, I just said you had a photographic memory. That's true, right? And he said, no. <laughs> oh, it's a steel trap. I, I <laughs> it, said, come on, Ray. It's he a said, steel well, trap. Well, it's not like it used to be. Yeah, it is a steel trap. 
Absolutely. Oh, okay. He I, says, I always say stuff goes, information goes in, does not escape. It's it always not. on reference. Okay. I yep. want to get to one thing because uh, Ray rarely loses his temper. But when he mm-hmm. does, it's a thing of beauty. And you guys had one of the all-time episodes. I'm going to play this now. It cuts, what, about two minutes? Okay. Yeah. You're, you're in this. Ray's in this. Who are these idiots from Boston? Uh, Mike Felger. Mike Felger and Albert Breer. Okay. Who's who's right. the, the, the Mike, chief? Mike Felger. Felger's the chief guy. Okay. Here you go. Yeah. yeah. Ray Dittinger. Um, just what it would be like. You speak for the fans since you grew up as one and, and then became a, an observer of the team. I think they're the best fans in the NFL. I, I really do. I think they're I think they're great fans. They're incredibly loyal. Uh, people don't understand the frustration that this franchise has felt for all these years. I think all you have to do is just look at the NFC East, which has been a great division in football forever. Great players, great coaches, great rivalries. And yet, as we sit here today, Dallas Cowboys have five Super Bowls. New York Giants have four Super Bowls. Washington Redskins have three Super Bowls. The Eagles don't have any. Okay. And so if you talk about the Philadelphia fans having a high level of frustration, I'd say it's perfectly understandable, but I think it ends tonight. Mm-hmm. So I'm down with the frustration. It's just the undercurrent of violence. <laughs> that there, There's an undercurrent of violence that comes with the Philly fan. That it's I unsafe. In no other yeah. fan, it's the only fan base I'm around where I feel like I might get a metal chair off the back of my head. And I don't feel that way now when I'm with Steeler fans. Hey, Mike. How many games at Schaefer Stadium did you go to? Back in the day. Well, oh, and that, oh that I went there when I was a kid. That you, was a bad environment You want to tell me about violent fans? You right. want to tell me about thug fans? The you people I saw in Schaefer Stadium? They were the worst in the NFL. And what, but then you started to win, didn't you? No, and then everybody got happy. No, 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 that was the turn. The turn. What was that, Ray? It was 40 years ago. Everybody. We've evolved. Unlike Philadelphia. No, we're still hearing about snowballs and Santa Claus, which was more than 40 years ago. I mean, I'm tired of that stuff. Seriously, look. Look, I have all the respect in the world for Boston. I think it's a great sports town. I think in many ways it's very similar to Philadelphia. I think the passion of the fans. But one thing you cannot deny, the people in Boston didn't even know there was a football team in Foxborough until the Patriots here, started here. winning. That's fine. We're new and, money. But That's yet fine. you have these Eagles fans that are here, and they're supporting this team in tremendous numbers, and, and the season ticket has waiting list 60,000. They have waited more than a half a century and well, haven't won one. Michael? It was, that was awesome. It was a great moment that spoke for every single Philadelphia Eagle fan. Yep. <laughs> every, and, and, and then and the game paid it off. Everybody. Yeah, the game paid it off. It was beautiful. And and it spoke not just to Boston fans, but to every fan who would impugn a Philadelphia sports fan in general, and in particular an Eagles fan. And it was beautiful. And I, I haven't seen Ray ever uh, that angry. And, again, I, I guess I would say – Sports anger, but really he he was pissed, and because um, don't don't insult my people, and that was also the first time when you're a journalist, Glenn, as you know, um, and I wouldn't paint myself as a journalist. I'm not trying to smack myself around, but I, but you guys did, used to do and still do to a degree different than I, I try to play traffic cop, and so there's something where when you're a journalist, you kind of stand apart. And so if someone, if if your team that you rooted for, like the Eagles, and they love the Eagles, if they're losing, then they're losing. And you're just, you're reporting that. You're observing that. But this is the first time that I had sensed, like, that Ray, it it was an admission, like, I am from here. I do love uh, my people. These are my people. And don't you ever speak badly about them again, especially if you don't know what you're talking about. And And, and, uh, that was awesome. And then there was another moment. Uh, at that Super Bowl <laughs> afterward. Oh, that was that was 
Awesome, awesome you, in a different why, way. Why don't you describe how that came about? Well, it's funny because I, I just heard Barrett Brooks the other day saying he was trying he, he was trying to set the whole thing up, and I didn't realize that because I was hosting the show. It was the postgame show. We were in the NBC booth that NBC Sports had used because it, that was one of the reasons. Just the whole thing fell into place perfectly, Glenn, is, is because NBC had the Super Bowl. So for the postgame show, we went into the same booth that all the NBC hosts had used for the pregame and the halftime, and it was ours for the postgame. We had a great backdrop of the field, etc. So it's myself, it's Ray, it's Barrett, it's Seth Joyner, and it's the Gov. And the Eagles win. Everybody's going nuts. I don't know how long we were into the, to the show, Ray. It was probably like 20, 25 minutes. Probably. We're, we're doing the show. Yeah. And, and um, uh, Barrett said he saw David Dittinger, Ray's son, at the doorway to the to this suite, and I, I did not see David at that time. Uh, Barrett said he was waving David on. I, I did not see that. I'm hosting the show. And at some point, we had tossed to an interview or a post-game piece of sound. And um, Ray said, Mike, when are we going to – are we taking a break anytime soon? And I said, um, I said no, you know, I, I'm unsure. Why? Do you, do you need to use the restroom? And he said, no, I, I want to hug my son. Or I want to give my son a hug. I said, Hang on one second, Ray. <laughs> I can see it. I can see his eyes grow wide. Like, no, Mongo, no. And, and I, I looked at. I said, David, David, you know. And I, and I waved him on, and we saw the rest. And it was, it was, just it was great, amazing. And it, it was because because it spoke for every Philadelphia fan, and the generation to generation handing down of it, and the pent up emotion of it, and. Selfishly, I loved it because Ray always insisted to me that he was, you know, I'm not a fan anymore. I'm a professional journalist. I'd like to see him win, but I'm not going to get caught up. And we knew at that moment that, like, no, he's like everybody else, and he loves it, and it's in his, it's in his DNA, and it, and it was yeah. just great. But um, it, was, it was also the bridge, and, and Ray, you remember with the Gov, because Ray was all upset about it initially. Um, and, and, Ray, you said to the Gov, like, what? What will people be thinking back home? Exactly. Gov, you had you had say, concerns, you... Ray. Oh yeah, yeah, I did. I was I was I was when I sat down. Um, I mean, the moment was the moment was the moment. I mean, the moment was a father and son thing. Um, but when it was over and I sat down, I thought, I just don't know how this is going to play back home. I mean, I knew I knew how big the audience was. I mean, I mean, I I, I knew how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people were watching that post game show, and they were just watching me hug my son and break down and cry after the Super Bowl. And after 50 years in the business of being a pretty dispassionate, objective journalist, I wasn't real comfortable with that. When I sat down, I said to the governor, I'm not so sure that was a great thing. And he said, no. He said it was a beautiful thing. And he said the people back in Philly, he said, what, that, that moment you just had with your son is happening in every living room, in every house back in Philadelphia. He said, believe me. He said the people aren't just, aren't, they're, they're not just going to understand. They're going to love it. And he was right. They did. But also, Glenn, it was and the one thing that I don't know if if the microphone picked up and Ray, is, I, I know he wrote it in his book, but he said to David as they were embracing, he said, this is for Pop. Oh, yeah. And, and they, Ray's late father. And I, I think that that's what was going on around the Delaware Valley in, in many cases is, is the loved ones who were not there to witness it. And, and I don't know to what degree David Dittinger and, and – um, Ray, Ray Senior, Ray, Ray. Yep. Um, 
watch games together, but obviously there was a bridge from Dittinger to Dittinger to Dittinger, and um, and I think that's what also made it special is the invocation of of Ray Senior. And the one beautiful. and and the other thing that came out of that post game was the photograph that became the cover of my book. <laughs> well, I'll I'll own up to that one with uh, with. Uh, Pride for all time, I'll tell you that. We were yeah, standing, we I, were standing there, and we were all standing there because we didn't come on live immediately after the game because the game ends and there's a trophy presentation. So we waited for all of that to play out. So we had probably had about fifteen or twenty minutes before we came on the air at at NBC Sports Philly. So we're just watching the celebration. We're up in the booth and we're watching the celebration. And I heard Michael's voice behind me, and he said, "Hey, Ray." And I turned around, and Michael had his cell phone up, and and I just I gave him the thumbs up. He took the picture with the celebration going on behind me, and it was such it was such a wonderful picture and such a wonderful keep, what's a wonderful glimpse and freeze frame of that moment. That when I wrote my book, finished business, they said, "What do you want to use as a cover shot?" I said, "There's only one photograph I think that I, I would want to use," and I showed them your photograph, and they said, "Oh, this is perfect." So, so, so your so that photograph on the cover of Finished Business was shot by none other than Michael Barkin. And you get what about a buck a buck per copy sold, Mike? Yeah, keep going. Yeah, down, uh, keep going down. So, so <laughs> your show, the the post game show, the pregame and the post game, but it's really the. The post game, I think, is the hallmark, right? That's that's the one. Uh, we'll continue, yeah. and and I'm sure it will it will be great. And this show will continue without Ray, and we'll, you know, we'll, you figure it out. Um, but I I just I I think I speak for myself. I think I speak for a lot of people, which is this. Okay, when it's Eagles home games, I'm I'm at the game, so I don't get to see it as much. But all the Eagles road games, uh, the game ends. And I immediately flip over, right? And I have to watch like the last hand of poker, and then they like they cut, yeah. and, and, and no, it's like everybody sees that, right? You see that one, yeah, the ending yeah. of the poker, some car race that you don't care, whatever filler programming they're sticking in there during the game, and then you hear the theme music, which fortunately is brief, and then they go to you, and I and I'm telling you, I think I speak for everybody, which is as I watch the Eagles game, I form an opinion, right? And if they lose, okay, so the Eagles lose, and I'm mad, and this is why they lost in my mind. And I flip over, and it's like I'm watching you hollering at the players going to the locker room, which is classic. And then they come on the set. And I want to know, what does Ray think? Because I want to know, and there's no disrespect to Seth or Barrett or whatever, who are terrific, but Ray is Ray. And I want to know, like everybody else, does Ray agree with me? Everybody wants that affirmation. I think Andy Reid's an idiot. Is Ray going to agree with me? I think that, you know, Gannon didn't do – does Ray agree with me? And every time we go to it, I see the top of Ray's head as he's scrawling in the yellow legal pad, whatever number I don't need. And I just want Michael to say, Ray, look at the camera and tell him what you thought. You're not the only one who feels that way. I have colleagues here who say, you know, why, why is he – it's disrespectful. Why is he not uh, – why? It's not the, the disrespect. Is, I just – I need immediate Ray. Yeah, right? I know. I know. I know. But 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 he, he's compi- – I don't know what you're doing, Ray. I, I think he's compiling his final statistics oh, and yeah. making his final They were seven for 16 on third down and whatever. Right. we got to know that. Yeah, I'm doing the math, basically. Yeah, right. Which, whatever. Anyway yeah. – uh, I, I just want to give you a minute, Michael, because we do have to go up. But I just want to kind of give you a minute to wrap up your thoughts on how many years you guys worked together. Oh, man, oh, since 87. 
Yeah, since 87, but really uh, in, in earnest uh, on the regular like this, uh, it'll be 25 years Okay, um, coming up in October. And and as I texted you, Glenn, the, the one thing I'll miss is, as much as the, as the shows, which were fun, because let's face it, we're blessed to be able to talk about sports and, and, and the Eagles, since we've been on the air at NBC Sports Philadelphia, um, have been, I think, for the most part, pretty darn good. Certainly they have have had little lapses, one of them we hope we're getting out of right now. Um, but for the most part, they've been great. It's been great to talk about that. But the real pleasure of it has been sitting next to Ray um, for all those years. And, you know, uh, Shil Kapadia from The Athletic is writing a big piece. I, I'm sure you've talked to him, Ray and Glenn. And, and uh, I, I said it's just, and as I texted you, Glenn, last week, it's, it's just being with Ray and talking about anything in the world as we're watching the game. And, and, and certainly, Ray is always riveted on the game. He always knows the down and distance. He always has the context of what's going on. But uh, if you want to talk to him about a cruise that he's been on or you want to talk to him about a particular restaurant that he may have enjoyed or what's coming up next, where's Tommy and me going to play um, or, or any piece of theater that he may have seen, uh, th- those are the conversations that I will truly miss. Plus, you know, he's an antagonizer and an instigator. And, and if something bad happens, we have a little mantra we say, which is, it's a disgrace. <laughs> and, and Ray, Ray will, will, will go back and forth just kind of under our breasts. It's a disgrace, Ray. Uh, it's a disgrace, Mike. <laughs> and then if they really lose badly or they, some dumb play uh, hastens their loss, literally 10, 9, as we're about to go on the air, and the stage manager is counting us down to the show, Ray just says, it's a disgrace, Mike. It's a disgrace. I'm like, I don't need you right now doing that. Um, so, so yeah, I'll miss my, you know, I'll miss my friend in the, in that context. But um, you know, we're already talking about uh, going out to dinner. Certainly, it'd be great if you and Judy would join us, um, uh, as Ellen and I would love to join the four of you. And and um, so I, I know the friendship will continue for all time. But just to have that yep. that comfort, to have the friendship. Uh, that's what that's what I'll miss. He, he's just he's just been he is an amazing person, uh, you know, just an stuff. amazing person. Thank you, Mike. And listen, so, I got to th- I, 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 since you're on the phone, I have to thank you again uh, for the beautiful introduction you gave uh, when the night down in Atlantic City when I just uh, yeah. about a month ago when I was given the Reds Bagnell Award um, that uh, they asked you to be the presenter, you and Carl Peterson to be my presenters and. Uh, what you said that night uh, in terms of the introduction uh, was was really beautiful and very meaningful, and it's something I'll, I'll always appreciate. Th- I, I can't thank you enough for that night. That was pretty special. Well, it's all from the heart, and uh, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm so I'm, – it's a moment I always treasure, Ray. So right, Michael. Thank Thanks, you Mike. That. Thanks so much, man. I'll talk thank to you, you soon. Thank you, Ray. Love you both. Thanks right. a lot. Thanks, talk Mike. What a good fellow. What a good fellow. I mean, we – we had a lot of really, really good times together over the years, and he is so. And anybody that's seen him on the air, he's so much fun. I mean, he is. He is so. I mean, he's. That's that is a tough show to do to be the to be the guy in his chair that has to coordinate all the moving parts in that show. Go to the stadium for the interview. Go to the press conference for this. Uh oh, Seth wants to talk. You know. Oh, here comes the governor. I mean, there are so many things happening there, and he's the guy that kind of has to keep the train on the tracks, and that's really hard to do. But man. He's really, really good at it, and it was, and it, and he's right. I mean, just the sitting together, sitting next to each other, just watching the games together, is probably the thing I'll miss the most. Mm-hmm. I get that. Listen, I really get that. 
Ray Diddinger, Glenn Mack. Now it's really nice to speak to Michael. Let's, uh, Dr. Gerald uh, has been wanting to talk to you for a while, Ray. Hopefully uh, he does not have a prescription or medical advice or whatever. Just wants to chat. Hey, Doc. Good morning. Uh, you guys are professionals. It's such a joy to listen to you. Thank you, Doctor. Um, Ray, I've, I've been reading you and watching you on TV and listening to you on the radio for over 50 years, and it's it's been quite a pleasure. You're thoughtful, you're open-minded, you're articulate, and except for Rory, you're never argumentative. So it has absolutely <laughs> been a pleasure. Thanks, Doctor. I, I appreciate that. I commend you on your decision to spend more time with your family. Two stories. One, one of my favorite patients is a funeral director. And I asked him, how long have you been a funeral director for? And he said, 40 years. And I said, is there any pearl of wisdom that you can share with me from your time? And he said, no. He said, no, there is one thing. He said, never forget it's your family that pays the price for your professional success. Mm -hmm. And you recognize that. And now that you said you're going to be accommodating to your family schedule. So I commend you on that. The other thing I wanted to say is I have a Tom and me story where my favorite eagle growing up was Tom Wittishek. Right. And my, and my birthday was in December. And I was 12 or 13 years old, and my dad took me to one of the last games in December. And Tom Wittishek was going for 1,000 yards rushing, which was a pretty big thing back then. Real big thing. A, I believe they are playing the Minnesota Vikings, and he got blown up. And they carried him off in a shield. He had a big head gash. You he almost, lo- almost lost his eye. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. And fast forward 15 years from that, I'm an intern. And it's January, and I'm on the oncology service. And Tom Wittishek's wife's coming in for treatment. Tom Wittishek comes in with her, and he did all the care for her after chemotherapy. He would not have the nurses do it. He would bathe her. He would hold her head as she was vomiting. He would comfort her. And he became a tremendous hero to me at that time. I believe that. That's a really nice story. I believe that. It's it's a particularly nice story because your hero as a kid ends up doing something heroic. Oh, it it, it was so magnified in terms of my respect for him. That's so, really nice. Just want to share that story. Thank many, you. Many Thanks, Doctor. Hey, Doc, Thank I'll you. ask you a question. The game sure. the game where Tom Woodishuk got the eye injury, and it's, Ray, if I'm correct, it's because the face bar in his helmet his, got his face his face mask snapped off, right. and the and the jagged edge went in his eye. Yes. What is that game more remembered for, Doc? Uh, was it Joe Muscow? That was it. And it was Snowballs at Santa Claus. That's Snowballs at Santa. That was it. When I uh, wrote the Great Philadelphia Fan Book, I went to the library to look up story because they weren't on the internet, right? So I had to like go find microfiche of what was the story of the Snowballs at Santa game. And so I found the game stories from the day. And the Wooderschick thing was a huge deal. And as he said, and you said he was going for 1,000 yards. Right. He felt, I think, 965 or something like that fell, ended up falling short because of the injury. But what was interesting to me is the snowballs at Santa like weren't mentioned until like the 10th paragraph of the story. Yeah, it was not a big deal. It was not a big deal it until, was not a big until deal. Howard Cosell used to have a Sunday night show mm-hmm. 
and he would go like you know they have now the eleven thirty sports shows, and he went on and he said uh, he used to do the the whip around highlights like he did later on Monday Night Football right in Cleveland Jimmy Brown went for a hundred and twenty five yards and in Los Angeles Roman Gabriel and in Philadelphia we will show you no highlights but for this. And he gets, you know, the, the snowballs of Santa. And that made it the thing. Mm-hmm. That, and that was That's it. how it became a national story. Yeah. Yep. Hated Cosell. Yeah, it was not a big thing. I mean, you look back at the microfilm of the Philadelphia Papers the next day. You're right. It was barely mentioned. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like a 10th or 12th paragraph, almost a throwaway line. But Howard, Co- Howard Cosell made it a national story, and we've been living with it ever since. All right. Here you go. Questions for Ray. This is from Joseph. Ray is such a man. <laughs> Ray is a man of such class. Was there ever a time on the job where he felt he acted acted less than professionally? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I know the answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was uh, a U.S. Open uh, back in the seventies. It was. Uh, <clears throat> I'm trying. To, I can't remember if, it was, if we were at Medina or at Wingfoot. We we're at one of those two courses, and it was in the seventies. And I was at the Bulletin, and I was covering golf. Uh, and uh, Tom Watson, Tom Watson was leading the U.S. Open by some ridiculous total, like six, seven strokes, going into the final round. And so you were you were allowed in the locker room in golf. I don't know if you still are, but back then you could go in the locker room before the guys went on the course and interview them before they went on the course. Yeah, I imagine that's not the same. Yeah, probably not now. But you could then. I mean, hey, locker- Tiger, are you going to use your four iron? <laughs> locker, room, locker room was wide open, so you just walk in. So we're all standing around Tom Watson's locker waiting for him to arrive, and we're all bemoaning the fact that he's got this big lead and it's going to be a very boring day, and he's, you know, and He's going to win. He's, he's leading by six strokes. He's going to wind up winning by 12 strokes, and it's going to be really, really boring. And so one of the, so I said, to just in a moment of levity, I kind of said, well, we might be able to make this kind of interesting. And all of Tom Watson's clubs were all lined up in front of his locker. And so I said, we could just do this. And I, I picked up his putter, and I held it like over my knee, like I was going to snap it in half. And at that, at that very moment, Tom Watson came around the corner and, and saw me standing there with his putter raised over my knee. Not at all sure that I wasn't going to break it, okay? And he gave, there was like this, like, you ever hear expression, your, my jaw hit the floor? I swear his jaw hit the floor. And I saw him, and I, I, didn't, I didn't know what, to, what I'm going to do. I, I'm standing there holding his putter, and I said, Tom, Tom, Tom. I was just kidding around, just joking, just kidding around, just kidding around. And I put the putter down. Uh, and it was incredibly embarrassing. Uh, and the other thought that so I had was. a character for you. It was, I mean, we're just goofing around. I mean, we're just—it really was just goofing around. Yeah, you were younger and yeah, and uh, and I mean, we were we were just joking around about how boring the day was going to be. And I said, Oh, come on, we can make it exciting here. Look at this. And at that very moment, Tom Watson turns the corner, and there I am staring him face to face. And well, the the wrap up of the story is that Tom Watson went out and just blew up that day. I mean, he just he shot like seventy nine and wound up blowing the U.S. Open. And there were all of these moments when he's on the green and he's like. He's like holding his putter up in the air, and he's like looking at it before he putts. And everybody in the press room is looking at me like, "You did this, you know. This is all your fault." Text him. 
Oh God, it was so awful. I mean, that that was that was the most. Did, did, unpro- he, did he lose? Was oh yeah, he blew the tournament. Oh my God, if Tom, Tom Watson would have a one more major on his record if it oh wasn't for me, gosh. probably. Oh my! Did uh, how did you not get sent home? Who, who was going to send me home? Well, I don't like, know. The PGA whoever, or what? yeah. Well, I mean, no, I mean, nobody did. Let that. me put it this way: if somebody tried to, if somebody today, a golf writer, picked up Tiger Woods's club and goofed around like that. You think they're going to be able to stay there and cover? No, their probably not. Right? No, probably it's not. Pretty loose back then. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, I, I, I took, a, I took a lot of, I took a lot of grief for that, and I should have. That was, that's probably the most unprofessional thing I've ever done. And it was just, it was just, we were just joking yeah, around. But listen, I, I get the humor. If I was there, I would have yucked it up with you. Yeah, you but know. it was. I mean, it was, it was. Yeah, it was not my finest hour. That's for sure. All right, uh, serious question. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, you know this guy, Phil Heron. Uh, oh yeah, uh, Delaware County Daily Times. Yeah. As a proud alum of the Daily Times, please ask Ray about the demise of local newspapers and the industry in general. Yeah. It's got to hurt. It does. It does, because that's where I started. I started, I came out of Temple and got my first job at the Delaware County Daily Times, and that was, you know, that was the first rung on the ladder and working our way up. And I I remember, I kind of think what I'm looking at it, even while I was at Delco Times, I was in news. I wasn't writing sports. But I remember those days that, the suburban newspapers, they were right there with the big city newspapers in terms of competing with you. I mean, they were there in the press box every night. They were sending guys on road trips. I mean, they made all the same trips. They, you know, they, they were as much in terms of the competition of covering the teams as the big city papers were, all of them. Bucks County was that way. Delaware, Delaware County was that way. Camden was that way. I mean, all the papers. Norristown, I mean, they covered the teams in a, in a major league way. But now... You know, the papers just don't have the money to do that. They don't have the space to do that. Um, the mission has changed. But back in those days, the suburban newspapers, and I'm talking 70s, 80s, even into the early 90s, the suburban newspapers from a sports standpoint were every bit as competitive as the big city papers were. Well, I mean, I'm going to take it, you know, one step larger, which is the whole industry is dying, and I don't see a way out of it. I, I, I got into newspapers a little bit after you, but I got into newspapers in what was a real glory era of newspapers. You know, I was inspired by Watergate and look at, sure. look at what reporters are doing, and newspapers had resources. And when I worked for the Detroit Free Press and then for the Philadelphia Inquirer, they would send us, you know, fly across the country to do this interview. Right. Right? And, and you know, take all the space you need. You need to write 2,000 words? Go ahead. Write 2,000 words. Right. And, oh, my God, it was great. Um, when we were doing it. And then um, I got out of it in at the end of 93 to come here. And in, as we got out of it, we could start to see that things were changing. Um, the paper I'd worked for in Detroit formed what was known as a joint operating agreement with the other paper, meaning they weren't going to compete. And you look now, the Inquirer and the Daily News kind of folded together. And Neither of them has half the resources or the space or, you know, that they that they did back no. then. And it shrinks and it shrinks and it shrinks. And the websites become more worse and worse and worse. And I f- just feel or fear that the industry just there's there's no way to save it. Um, you know, news is delivered in other ways these days. And I don't think it's better, uh, but things evolve. Um but to, to Phil's question, um, I'm glad that I worked in newspapers when I did, yep. and I'm glad I got out when I did. I feel exactly the same way. I, I feel like I'm I'm older than you, so I got into the business before you did, and I really feel like I've, I've often said this, but I feel like I caught the last great wave. You know, I feel like a surfer who got the last great wave because I came in at the time when 
I actually got to I actually got to be into the becoming into the business when Red Smith was still there and Jimmy Cannon was still there uh, and um, you know Maury, um, Maury Povich, uh, Shirley Povich was still there. I mean, all those great Maury's dad. Uh, yeah, all those great. I mean, the true legends of sports writing. Those guys. Uh, Blackie Sherrod. I mean, all those guys. They were still in the business. They were the they they were the old guard of the business. And I came in, and you know, they're they're right around me. I'm covering the Super Bowl, and I'm sitting next to Red Smith. I'm at the AFC Championship game. I'm sitting next to Jimmy Cannon. Uh, so I kind of came in right as they were phasing out, and then then we went through that whole surge of you're right, the '70s, the '80s, when there was a ton of money. I mean, the Daily, when I went to the Daily News, the Daily News circulation was over 300,000. Yeah, when I went to the Inquirer, Sunday circulation was over a million. I know. I used to write those stories like, oh, my God, people read this stuff. Yeah, and, 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 it was, and there was a ton of money and there was a ton of space. I remember in the D- Daily News sports section, we would do these pull-out special sections. Yeah. Football tabs. Yeah. You know, that when Mike Schmidt hit well, 500 home runs, we did a 500 home run thing. That was bigger than the paper of today. That, well, and the fact that they said, Ray, go fly and interview every 500 home run hitter. Yeah. As opposed to now, they'd say, like, you know what? Send him an email. See if he emails you back. Right. Okay. We got to hit a break. It was Those days were great. One quick question before we hit the break. Chuck wants to know, hey, Ray, did Lenny Dykstra ever pay you the money he owes you? Uh, no. Lenny still owes me $7,000 for two stories that I wrote for his magazine. I still I have the magazine. <laughs> I have the magazine. I got that in the mail, but there was no check inside. I've looked. Didn't he, uh, you were on the morning show like a year ago, something talking about this, and somebody alerted him and he called up and denied it or something? Am I remembering this correctly? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, we, I, was, I was on that morning, and Lenny just called in to complain about something that Angelo had said. And, and after, you happened to be there? I just happened to be here. Ah. And, you know, Angelo and Lenny kind of had it out on the air. And after Lenny got off the line, I said, I was going to ask him where my $7,000 is. And then, of course, Angelo immediately said, what are you talking about? And I told the story. And then Lenny called back and claimed that he didn't owe me anything, which is not true. I have the magazine. I have the proof. Yeah, I'm taking your credibility. Even without the magazine, I, you know, it's a credibility test. Yeah, in the court of public opinion, I think I would probably win. In all the years of covering sports, this is a question that people have asked me. I'll ask you and see if the answer is different. I will ask you at some point, because uh, I want to hit a break now, the, the, the people – whom you respect the most, but the lowest of the low lives has to be Lenny Dykstra. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. And your, in your case, I mean, you had some experience with him. I didn't have much, but uh, yeah, he's if he's not at the bottom, he's right there. Two one five five nine two ninety four ninety four. Ray Dittinger, Glenn Mack, now ninety four WIP. Ray Dittinger, Glenn Mack, now ninety four WIP. Will has been hanging in Bedminster, New Jersey. Will, what do you got to say? Hey guys, how are you? All right. Hey, you do a great job, Glenn, uh, with the interviews and asking Ray questions. So I just I just wanted to let you know that first of all. Thank you. I appreciate that. Ray, I uh, was listening yesterday. I'm I'm actually a teacher and coach, and I know you talked about that might be something you'd consider in a, in a had you not been a uh, reporter. But uh, when I was listening to the interview yesterday, I was saying, "Geez," I said, "Ray, Ray's in good company. His wife loves him. His kids love him, and Dick Vermeil loves him." <laughs> yeah, the, that was a real nice phone call from Dick, and it, it got pretty emotional towards the end. Uh, I got a lot of emails about that, but the but the but the feeling that Dick and I have uh, for each other after all these many years is it's very genuine. And uh, uh, and when he called up to 
to wish me well in retirement. It uh, it got pretty emotional. I, I'm not surprised because Dick is that way. I mean, everybody that's seen Dick, and <laughs> I can only imagine what his speech in Canton's going to be like. He's just real emotional, and it doesn't take much for him to break down. But when he did yesterday, I did too. Yeah, did you, when he left the Eagles in 82, did you guys normally keep in touch over the years in terms of building that relationship? We did. We did because he, came, he, you know, he went into the media at that point. You know, he stopped right. coaching. He, he walked away from coaching because he kind of had to walk away from coaching for his own health at that point. And then yeah. he, he got into broadcasting, and he became a member of the media. So our relationship sort of went to a different place. You know, we were almost kind of we both in the same business, really. And so yeah. I, I, I had so much respect for his football knowledge that um, – before I wrote things or before I said things, I would often just run it by Dick. I would call him up and say, you know, I'm thinking about doing a piece about such and such, um, this trend in football. What do you think about it? And just bounce yeah. things off him. So, yeah, we maintained that relationship over time. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, 14 years later, he winds up coming back to the Rams and winning a Super Bowl. So uh, our relationship started in 76, really, when he came to Philadelphia. And it's going through many phases. But it's a, it's a real good one, and it's one I hold dear. All right, some questions from uh, some of the people who reached out to me on social media. Jason Torrance, can you ask Ray to do his Don McKee impression? I remember he did a great one when I was a producer. Now, I didn't know that. I certainly know the Paul Jolovitz. I know the, <laughs> the you did the, the great Big Daddy Graham impersonation. <laughs> uh, I, I need to hear the Don McKee. The only thing I did, the only thing I did with Don was I, I, I would imitate his laugh. Um, it was... was he, his his laugh was it wasn't really a laugh it was ah, 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 ah. that was his laugh that yeah. was how he laughed yeah. he would say it would you know you would say something and he would say ah, 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 ah. it was it was the oddest laugh but that's that was pretty easy that was a pretty easy one and i'd never heard anybody laugh like that before but uh don and i yeah we worked together on on the saturday show um Pacifico Ford in the in the show, in the showroom there back when it was oh. a back when it was a five hour show oh. we used to go from ten ten in the morning till three in the afternoon. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say anything. So. Okay. All right, uh, Ravi wants to know what is the most difficult interview Mr. Didinger ever conducted, uh, and I think I may know the answer. I don't think so. You don't think I know the answer? No. Oh, okay. I was thinking it was a sixer with where we used to wear the number two. Oh, Moses? Yeah. Well, that was – it wasn't really an interview because Moses never allowed it to be an interview. Moses, yeah. I would Tell just – that story, though, because that's a good story of how you, you figured out a way to do good journalism. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the paper – it was the year that Moses joined the Sixers and was the best player in the league and led them to the championship ultimately. And during the course of that season, the sports editor said to me, I'd like you to do a big takeout. They called them takeouts, and they were full-blown sort of long-form stories in the paper. Do a, do a takeout on Moses. Um, because, you know, everybody sees him playing, and we cover him on a day-to-day basis, but nobody really has done a big, in-depth kind of piece about who this guy is and what makes him tick. And I, I sort of said to Mike at, at the time, Mike Rath at the sports, I said, Mike, you know, he, he just doesn't seem to talk very much. I don't think he's going to sit still to do it an in-depth story with some reporter he doesn't even know. So he said, no, 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 just, just go try it. Go, go, go. So I went, to, I went down to a practice and introduced myself and said I wanted to do this big story. And, and he just blew me off. He just said, no, nah, I'm not doing that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't talk about that. I said, well, you know, nobody here, the people in town don't, don't really know very much about you. And he said, that's the way I like it. 
you know. And I, he said, I was in Houston all them years, and they didn't know me down there either. I said, I like it that way. And I said, why? He said, I just do. And he picked up his gym bag and walked out, and that was the end of the interview. And the sports, I went back to sports. I said, nah, Mike, he doesn't want to do it. And I thought that would get me out of it. <laughs> it didn't. He said, no, we still need the story. You got to go do it. And I made, I went on a road trip with him, figuring I would maybe just get some access to him on the airplane, in the hotel, just around, just maybe grab a snippet here, a snippet there. He wouldn't even deal with me. I, I mean, he, he wouldn't talk to me. And it, by the end of the trip, he wouldn't even look at me. And I came back to the sports editor. I said, well, that was a total waste of time. He's, he's not going to cooperate. And he said, well, st- I'll go do the story with other people, other people talking about him. So that was how I did it. I went, I went to his hometown of Petersburg, Virginia. I found some guys that he grew up with, guys he went to school with, uh, a couple family members, um, talked to his teammates, talked to guys he played with in, uh, in, uh, in high school, talked to guys he uh, played with on other teams, and just did this whole profile, this portrait of Moses Malone through the words of other people. And that's the story that I wound up writing and <laughs> wound up being picked as the best sports story of the year. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, so sometimes what, what the sports editor told me was, you know, sometimes quotes are overrated. You know, if you had talked to Moses Malone and he had sat and told you his life story, the story wouldn't have been half as good as what you got. Yeah. And it was a real lesson for me. I think there was a lot of truth in that. Uh, James says, I heard that Ray started out as a political writer. Is that true? Well, I don't know if that's true, but you did. You certainly had an experience with a national figure. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, uh, my right out of college, I went to work at the Delaware County Daily Times, and they didn't have any openings in sports, but they had an opening in news. So they um, um, they offered me a job in the news department, and I took it. And uh, I spent a year at the Delco Times doing news. And uh, yeah, I, I covered a little bit of everything as as reporters do at a small paper. You cover all the little stuff that's happening in the community: borough council meetings, school board meetings all that kind of stuff. But you also cover bigger stories. That And that year was the summer of 1968. Uh, and there was a presidential campaign going on. And, of course, the presidential candidates were all swinging through Pennsylvania and swinging through Delaware County. And so Richard Nixon came through. I got to cover one of his rallies. Hubert Humphrey came through, got to cover one of his rallies and actually interview him. And George Wallace, who was running as a third-party candidate, uh, came to Delaware County, and uh, I got to interview him. <laughs> One-on-one, right in his hotel room? Yeah, in his hotel room at the Holiday Inn uh, down in uh, Essington, uh, right there by, right, not that far from the airport, really. Yeah, it was, uh, it was one of those deals where, the, where our city editor came over to me and said, uh, there, there's a George Wallace press conference at the Holiday Inn in Essington at, at uh, noon. Uh, I want you to go cover it. And so got in the car and drove down there. And I figured, look, I, George Wallace was, like, not my favorite person. <laughs> I mean, to me, George Wallace stood for kind of everything that was wrong with the country at that time. Um, but, okay, I can go cover his press conference because I figure other reporters are going to be there. They're going to ask the questions. I'll just stand in the back, write down the answers, and I got my story. And I was also covering him. He was doing a, he was doing a, a rally at the Spectrum that night. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was doing this press conference at, at noon. And then he was going to do the Spectrum event at night, and I was going to cover both. Um, so I went to the Holiday Inn figuring I'm just going to be a fly on the wall. I'm just going to stand in the back and let the other reporters do the work. Except when I got there and I saw the room number and I went to the room, this was not a press conference. It was just me and George Wallace. 
uh, and a security guard and his press aide. Yeah, it's almost like your Ali situation. It was very much like that. Uh, it was very much like that, and I find myself, I knock on the door, the security guard or the state trooper opens the door, uh, and I say, I'm the guy from the Daily Times. He says, come on in, and there's George Wallace sitting there, and there's an empty chair sitting there for me. And and now I'm, I'm about three weeks out of college. I'm sitting right across from George Wallace, the 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 face of segregation in America in the 60s stands for everything I don't believe in uh, and here I am I'm staring at him and I'm saying what do I ask this guy because I hadn't given it a moment's thought I just thought I was just going to poach on other guys questions I hadn't thought about this for a second mm -hmm. and now here I am and now what do I do and I just fumbled around and I asked a question of how, how's the campaign going. I mean, I, I just the it, game is so. How's the team? I I I I think I think, I think I, I was so desperate at one point. I actually think I asked him how's the Alabama football team. I think I asked him what, what kind of a recruiting year did Bear Bryant have. I mean, I, I I mean I was just so I was so I was so out of my depth. But what happened was, and what came out of that was, like after ten minutes, George Wallace basically threw me out. I mean, he, he looked at his press aide and. and the guy got the message, and he said, oh, the governor's got a, other things he's got to do. And they basically kicked me out, which they should have. I mean, I, I came in totally ill-prepared. But here's the thing. I got to my car, and I was so angry, not at Wallace, but at myself, mm -hmm. for going in there unprepared. I said, I vowed. I said, this will never happen to me again. Hmm. I will never go on an assignment. I will never go into an interview unprepared. So... When you look across the table at me here today, okay, and I have all these papers all spread out, and I have all my notes and all my legal wow, tablets. that was the moment. That was the moment. I can thank George Wallace. Everybody laughs, at, everybody laughs about my yellow legal tablets and all the information that I bring with me. I can tell you honestly that it came from that day at the Holiday Inn in Nessington when I walked out and I said, this is never going to happen to me again. And so everywhere I've gone, everything I've done, be it in newspapers, radio, TV, my preparation is a result of having once understood how bad it is to be unprepared. Well, Ray, one of the nice things about working with you here toward the end is people want to bring you presents, and sometimes this works to my advantage. I'm telling you, this is really good. Mm -hmm. I like this. Four Bratz Cheesecake, which you've re you recall was a finalist in our chocolate uh, contest a couple of years ago. I remember it very well. Down at Delaware Park. Um, they, may, um, they make an amazing chocolate cheesecake, but they make a whole array of cheesecake. And Jimmy from Four Brats wanted you to get uh, some cheesecake as you depart, and so he brought a bag for you and for me and for Dan, our producer. And he did this last week too. He uh, delivered us a bunch of cheesecake. Yeah, last and I was—I had to leave early. And you I had to leave early. It, I know. So how nice of him to bring it again. Well, Kyle Quinn was real happy to take. He—he he sure. took your portion. Yeah, well, that's fine. That's okay. I—I—I I, uh, I appreciate it, and I appreciate him doing it. Uh, another one, actually, several of your former colleagues want to talk to you. I want to get uh, this guy here, Marshall uh, Harris, who, boy, he was so good in this market, and he, he moved on with Sacramento and then Chicago, and London is next. Where, where, where are we going next, Marshall? What's the story? I, I don't know. Maybe I'll roll back into Philly. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm wide open. Good morning, guys. How I guess you? good afternoon for you. Good afternoon, because we just, we just hit noon. Uh, I just I, – I, I saw – that Ray was retiring and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, wait a minute, what? Like, that's not possible. And I was like, but I guess everybody deserves some, some rest in peace and whatnot. Uh, I just wanted to say congratulations, Ray. I, I, Glenn knows this, Ray, but when I first moved to Philadelphia, a lot of what I learned about the city 
was from listening to you guys on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. I mean, there's a lot more, uh, <clears throat> we'll say bombastic, uh, maybe personalities out there uh, that do radio in that city. But as far as just education plus entertainment plus a kind of relatability, you guys always were the gold standard for me in that market. And uh, I, I just, Ray, I just want to say thank you for not only being a great coworker, um, but indulging me when I had you do such things as our yeah or nah segment <laughs> at uh, the artist formerly known as Comcast Sportsnet. And it was so much fun. And to get Ray, you know, who's a little more straight-laced than myself, per se, to play along was just fantastic and fun and it just really made those segments work. Well, I hope you understand, I hope you understand that I enjoyed it. I really did enjoy it. And, so, and some, of the, some of the things that we did, the shows that we did, the bits that we did were, were, really, were really a lot of fun. And I, I really enjoyed working. I really enjoyed working with you. It was, um, it was a great shop that we had there. I mean, we had a lot of good people. We did a lot of good TV. And we had a lot of fun in the process. And uh, I, I'm really, it's really nice of you to check in. I've been, uh, I've been thinking about you, and I'm glad that you're doing well. I, I appreciate it, Ray. And I, Glenn knows this also, but Ray, I, I considered it a great honor when Glenn would ask me to fill in when you were on vacation, out of town, taking time off, whatever, I was like, yeah, absolutely. He knows this. Unless I was like literally prior committed, I, I was in like Flynn. So thanks, you, guys. You were always my guy. Together. You were – listen, uh, and I'll say this. Hey, I, you guys were good together. And I – and I, if you move back, Marshall, I got a spot for you. <laughs> <laughs> I really do appreciate that sentiment. Uh, unfortunately, you know how contracts work. I'm stuck here for another couple of years at least. You enjoying Chicago? I am, Man, let me tell you something. The great thaw, as we call it, is over. Uh, it was in the 80s uh, this week. I was actually in Philadelphia this weekend, though, uh, and I was at the uh, Dodgers-Phillies game, and it was like 98 degrees or whatever yeah. it was. I was like, it's not this hot in Chicago, but Chicago is, bar none, it is elite. It's great city. Once, once the winter is over. It's and it, is, it has been just absolutely joyous just to go outside every day and do stuff. That's great. That's great. Hey, listen, Marshall, next time you're back in town, let me know. I'll meet you at Elvez. Oh! <laughs> yeah, do you owe me a dinner somewhere? You, we used to do the dinners at Palm. Unfortunately, they closed. Do you owe me a dinner or do I owe you a dinner? Uh, I believe you owe me a dinner. I, I got you last time, but uh, I, I'm trying to remember what the bet was. I think it was uh, Deshaun Jackson touchdowns or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, and uh, he okay. got hurt, and I was yeah, like, yeah, I'm I good. Lost that I'm one. good. Okay. Yeah, All right, so. All right. If I see well, you thanks, again, I'll buy you dinner. All right. I, I, will, I, will, I will let you guys know. Thanks so much. Um, and, and, Ray, you are appreciated. Just understand, you know, I'm trying to give you your flowers while you're still on the air because that's what, what I've been trying to do is give people their flowers. And I really appreciate working with you and filling in for you. And I wish you all the best, Matt. Thanks, Marshall. I appreciate that greatly. Thank you very much. Hi, Marshall. Be well. There you go. I always, when you were away, he was always the guy I wanted to Yeah, and he was good. He I mean, was you, good because you, he was – You guys, you guys were, worked very well together. Yeah, and he it, it was, it was a fun guy to disagree with because you could have a good debate debate with him and and i always enjoyed that uh another former colleague of yours john Vito from uh this is what the bulletin days right? yeah john and john and i worked together at the bulletin for a number of years john how are you doing i'm doing great ray uh congratulations on your retirement uh, i retired a year ago and you're going to enjoy it immensely so <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sort of counting on that john i knew that uh, you were I, I knew that you had retired and i thought well if john's checking out i probably should too <laughs> well, you know, Glenn, I wanted to say when I met Ray 51 years ago now, which is hard to believe, uh, 
I was a lowly copy boy working at the sports desk at the, at the bulletin and Ray never made me feel less than, or he never judged me. I mean, I always felt like one of the guys uh, and it made that time so enjoyable. Uh, and Ray, I just got to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I, I'm so happy. I knew you all these years and uh, that we got to play ball together, you know, and, Ray being a great quarterback and a great third baseman and won a couple of championships together. Yeah, I mean, boy, the, pr- the athletic prowess should not go unmentioned. Oh, no, you should not not forget that. He was he was great. And uh, I'm, I was fortunate enough to catch a few touchdown passes from him. So I'll never forget those days, Ray. And uh, I was only there, you know, four years or so. But, boy, I'll never forget him. And I just want to thank you. And I would wish you the absolute best. And if you're down thank in you, Southwest John. Florida, you you better uh, you better contact me. Well, you're down in the high rent district in Naples, so I know you're doing well. You know, it's it's funny. I, those years at the Bulletin, um, when we met in the early '70s, were such a great time uh, at the Bulletin. Uh, the Bulletin at that time was the number one was the, was the biggest circulation afternoon newspaper in America, and we knew it, and we knew it was something special, and it was a great place, a great newspaper. It had terrific a terrific family atmosphere thing. And, you know, I've often thought, and Alan Richmond, who was there at the same time as we were, and went on to greatness at, the, at Gentleman's Quarterly and won Beard Awards and all that stuff. But when I talk to Alan, Alan looks back and he says, you know, Ray, he said, the ha- my happiest years in the business were the years I spent at the Bulletin. And, that's, and there, that's from a guy that had great success at big publications, but looks back on the Bulletin as a really special time in his life, and so do I. It was a great, great time. I'm making $75 a week. I mean, I was happy as a lark, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, that picture of Jackie Wilson in your finished business book, I love because he's the guy who hired me back then. And, uh, and uh, just, just thank you and just enjoy, enjoy. You deserve every second. It's just so great to know a Hall of Fame person. You're really an icon in Philadelphia and will always be. So just thank thanks so much. Thank Ray. you, John. I appreciate it. It's great hearing from you. Um, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to finish today without uh, getting the chance to talk about Tommy and me. Uh, the play that you created and uh, wrote and have developed into something now that has been planned for what eight, ten years? How many years? We started in 2016, so okay. we're That's, into so we're six, six years, years and okay. working on number seven. Okay, and has kind of earned its spot as a permanent part of the artistic landscape in town. Um. Look, we, we know the story because the story is the play, but what was the story of you deciding to do to write it, to do the play? Well, I just I just knew the story of Tommy and me, uh, and me and Tommy McDonald, uh, how we met in 1957 at Eagles training camp, um, how he was my favorite player, and because of the way things were back then, with it was so easy and so and just so unfettered. I mean, there was no security. There were no fences. There was nobody telling you you can't go here, you can't go there. I mean, it, it, the, the players were there, and you could just walk right up to them and talk to them and get their autograph. It was it was just a kinder, gentler time, I suppose. Uh, but I, I got to meet Tommy McDonald, who was my favorite player there at Hershey at training camp. Um, asked for his autograph. He handed me his helmet and said, you want to walk to practice? And we did. And that was the start of our relationship that went on and on and ended up with the two of us uh, standing on the steps of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and I just, and I just thought, you know, it's such it's such a wonderful story. It's such a nice feel good story that I, I got to tell this, and so, 
you know, I sat down one day and decided, let's try to write a play. And what wait, came wait, out wait, was wait, Tommy wait, and hold me. On, hold on. You did that a little abruptly. You've written books. You've written articles. You've never written a play. No. How did you know how to write a play? It's not like, you know, I'm going to write a play. That's, that's, that's a daunting thing if you've never done it. Yeah, but I figured I'd give it a try. And if it, it, didn't, if it didn't work, it didn't work. But I knew, I, knew that, I knew this much. I knew I had a great story. I knew I had a great story. And so knowing that, okay, now it's just the mechanics. Now it's just the mechanics of putting it together. But I knew there was a great story there. And, you know, I brought it, and, and the first draft I brought to Joe Canuso, who was the director, and he said, yeah, he said, this is a great story. I love this. Um, he, and that's when he put me together with Bruce Graham. He said, there's some things we need to tweak just structure-wise. He said, but the story is terrific. And we went ahead and we produced it, and here we are. And uh, we just finished a great run at the Bucks County Playhouse. Yeah, I loved it. In, in April, which great, you, great you once again, you, you kindly came up and, and helped us with it. And um, we're going to do it again in August. We're going to do it. And this is, this is the one I've always kind of wanted. I always kind of hoped that one day we would bring the story of Tommy and me back to where it started, bring it back to Hershey, because there is a beautiful theater there called the Hershey Theater. And I always thought, how, how fitting and how cool would it be to bring the story back to the place where it really began. And so we are. Uh, the Hershey Theater reached out to us. Uh, we talked to them. We worked it out. And we're going to do three performances there in August, August 18th, 19th, and 20th. Uh, and we just had a press conference this week to announce it. And tickets are now on sale. So um, if, if you really kind of want to see the play of Tommy and me and you also want to see where Tommy and me, the story really, really began, you can do that this August by going to the Hershey Theater and seeing Tommy and me in its natural setting back in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Excuse me. So uh, I'm assuming people go to the website of yes. the – what's the name of the theater? Uh, Hershey, Hershey Theater. Hershey Theater, okay. Go to, go to Hershey Theater. You'll see the icon of Tommy and me. You click on it, and that's how you can order your tickets. Again, all of our other runs have been two weeks, three weeks, th stuff like that. This is only three performances, August 18, 19, and 20. So uh, if you want to come up and see it, and I really recommend you do because the cast is great, and, uh, and I think there's just going to be tremendous excitement actually doing it in Hershey where the story really started. Um, you know, get online and order your tickets. It's terrific. Good for you. I mean, it's something really to be proud of. You created this. Listen, you, you've done – you've won Emmy Awards, and, uh, and you, you've made a name for yourself, and you've done so many great things, but – but doing a play, this has a, a permanence to it that I think is is really special. Yeah, and I've had a lot of people in the last couple of weeks since I announced my I'm retiring ask, you know, what's the highlight of you know 53 years? Is there one highlight? Right after working with me. Yeah. Other than that, that right. well, that's well, that goes without saying. Sure. But um, it's it was it was me and him in Canton. It was it was that moment. It was that moment. Um, you know, your boyhood hero and. There you are, and you're riding in the open convertible with him through the streets of Canton, and people are cheering and hollering his name. And, you know, you, you had something to do with it. You know, you helped him get there. And, and, and to see him embrace that moment, and it was, the th it was the thing he always wanted in his life, and then to know that you helped him achieve it, mm -hmm. and then he allowed you to share the moment with him. I mean, that weekend in Canton, to be there, you know, as the 10-year-old boy all grown up, but now here with my boyhood hero, and I'm presenting him for induction into the Hall of Fame. 
I mean, that truly is the definition of a dream coming true. And that's, that, that's probably, when I look back over the whole, the, the whole entirety of the 50 years, that weekend in Canton, being with him and seeing what that meant to him uh, and being able to share it with him is probably at the top of the list. I don't know if anything will ever top that. Sure. Um, well, we want to get some callers in. This is one of our favorites over the years, Mitchie Tools. Are you guys getting tired of me, Ray? You're getting tired of me, aren't you? No. Not at all, Mitch. Not at no. all. How are you doing? All right, good. I just want to say, guys, you know, a lot of times I haven't called you guys on Saturday and Sunday. I'm busy at the shop, but both you guys, it's not just about sports. It's about you really touching people's lives emotionally and, and everything that you cover, sports, movies, food. And it's, you know, you guys are talked about when you're not on the radio. You know, somebody comes in and says, hey, you, you know, you guys are talking about this and that. It's, it's a part of our lives. And, you know, and Ray, I know you're going to enjoy your retirement and everything. But I have one question. Are any of these shows going to be available on, your, on the site, WIP, that we can arc, bring our, up? Uh, our, we podcast it every day. Dan yeah. Wilson, our producer, sends us a link in the afternoon. I put yeah. it on my social media. You can call it up. If you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, I, I, I post them every time we're on. Mm-hmm. But just, you know, w- when I hang up the phone and hear these stories, guys, Ray, stories about you and Glenn, it's just, you know, it, it, it makes my day go you know, better and all that other stuff. I just want to put that out there. Well, thanks very much. I think that what you said um – that has certainly been proven to me in the emails and the letters and the cards that I've gotten over the last couple of weeks is how we really do touch people's lives doing this show. Um, and sometimes when it's just Glenn and me here in the studio and we're just kicking stuff back and forth and we're talking about the Eagles or complaining about the Phillies or whatever we're talking about, sometimes it really just does seem to me and to Glenn that we're just two guys, two friends just sitting here talking. And honestly, sometimes I lose, I I don't even think in terms of there are a lot of people out there listening. Sometimes it just seems like it's him and me. But what has really become very clear to me now over these last couple weeks with the things that people have said and the the letters they've sent me is, is how we've become part of their lives. We've become part of their weekends. And we really do touch them. And it's, that part of it is really, really very meaningful to me. And uh, some of the things that people have said, uh, the thank yous, the good wishes, uh, has been, uh, has really been, has been great. I mean, it's, I'm not going to pretend that this isn't going to hurt me when I walk away from here because I, I love what I've done uh, and I'm going to miss it. I am frankly, I am frankly going to miss it when I'm not doing it. I'm going to miss the time I spend with Glenn. I'm going to miss my Sundays with Michael Barkan and Seth and Barrett. I'm going to miss that. There's no question I'm going to miss that. Um, but the, the wonderful things that people have said in their outreach to me over these last couple of weeks is really making me feel better about it, to know that people appreciated it and loved it as much as we enjoyed doing it. Um, okay, let me get uh, some of the questions for you. We got, uh, whatever, about 10, 15 minutes to go before you get out of here and I do a pregame show. Uh, how about this one? Um, uh, everybody knows. Uh, I've heard the stories. I don't know if it is just legend that Ray actually has been locked in a stadium for writing so slowly. Oh yeah. Oh heavens, yes. I mean, every, I think no. I, I I can't say every stadium in the NFL because there are a, a lot. There have been a lot of new stadiums built that I haven't been to yet. <laughs> but pretty much everyone that was standing 
during the time that I was a newspaper guy, I was locked so in. So, I mean, did you literally ever have to climb a fence? Like, how did that work? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so the, so the way these things work, for people who don't know, there's a big press box, and all the reporters are up in the press box, and the game ends, and then you write your story, and you file your story, and most guys try to get out, whatever, within an hour after the game or something. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so you were working for an afternoon paper, so you had a longer deadline. Late deadline, right. Okay. And so what happened? Um, I was always, I was, I mean, and I mean always the last guy out of the press box. Uh, And so um, in Philadelphia, they knew it. At the vet, the guys knew it. They just knew that I was going to be there, and I was going to be there until the sun came up. Some guys get an overtime to make sure you can get out. Right. Some guards get an extra pay. Right. So they knew it, and they just rolled with it. Uh, but in the other stadiums, yeah, they didn't know it. I mean, they just thought that I was just another sports writer that was going to finish up in a reasonable hour and they could go home. And no, no, no. I mean, <laughs> I was going to take as long as I was going. To, I was going to be there later than everybody. And so very often they would get to a point where they would just assume, well, I'm sure that guy's gone now, and they would just turn out the lights, you know, and everybody would lo- they would lock the doors and everybody would leave, and I'd be locked in the stadium. So. Yeah, I got uh, I got locked in the rock pile in Buffalo. One of my one of my first road not, trips. Not a great neighborhood. Uh, not a great neighborhood. No, it wasn't a great neighborhood. In fact, when I got downstairs and I called for a cab to come and get me, the cab company wouldn't come. <laughs> they yeah. said, no, "What at this?" Right. And it was a night game. Yeah, it was oh. a night game. So it was like two o'clock in the morning, and they said, "No, no, we don't send cabs out there at this hour of night." Um, but I got locked in RFK. Uh, I had to I had to climb the fe- I had to literally climb the uh, fence uh, to get out of the orange bowl. Uh, with all your equipment in tow. With, with, a, with a, carrying my Olivetti portable typewriter and my briefcase. <laughs> These are things they don't teach you in journalism school. No. <laughs> okay. Outran guard dogs. Uh, I mean, I had, uh, I, I, but, I, but I, over the course of time, and I covered the NFL for almost 30 years, I learned all of the emergency exits in every stadium. That if I, I kind of found, okay, here's the door that, I can get out. And I figured it all out, and I was ultimately able to do it. But at one time or another, I got locked in every stadium just because I was such a horrifically slow writer. Tony K. asks, did any athlete ever come to Ray for advice or help in his career? Um, no. Uh, I got one. I don't, I, don't know what, I don't know what I could have possibly uh, offered them. A certain track star? Oh, 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 that, oh, yes, okay. I mean, it, okay. it fits, right? Yeah, no, that, 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 that does fit the description. Yes, yes. Well, actually, John didn't come to me. I went to him. It was John Carlos. Who, uh, people don't know, was, a, was he the gold or the silver medal? He won bronze. Bronze, excuse me. Bronze medal. At uh, the 68 games. Right, and is famous for he and Tommy Smith putting on the black glove, uh, posing during the national anthem, Fist in the air, head back. Right, the 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 black power salute. First time it had ever been done in the Olympic Games. That uh, Tommy Smith won the gold, John won the bronze, and when they got them, when they're on the medal platform, uh, they they when the national anthem was played, they bowed their heads and they had a black glove and they raised their fist with a black glove on as a symbol of black power, uh, and um, racial uh, racial inequality in America was the statement that they were making, and um, they took. They took tremendous grief about it. In fact, the uh, the the U.S. O.C. sent them home. That they they were they were they were ran, run out of the camp. They were put on a plane and sent home from Mexico City. Uh, and they became, uh, I mean, in some segments of the society, uh, 
you know, they were heroes for taking the stand that they did. But by and large, they were condemned. They were largely condemned by the media. Uh, and so in 1970, John's track career had kind of gone away. Uh, and the Philadelphia Eagles drafted him. The draft was like 20 rounds that year. And like in round 15 or 16, they figured, what the heck, let's take a flyer on this guy. He's six foot three. He's two hundred and ten pounds. He's a world class sprinter. Let's let's draft him and see if we can make him a wide receiver. So they did, and John came to training camp. It was then Albright College in Reading, uh, and the first day of practice, I'm a rookie reporter. I'm in the locker room, and I'm walking out of the locker room, heading out to the field, and I look down the row of lockers, and there's one guy standing there, and <laughs> it's John Carlos, and he's standing there in his socks and his t-shirt and his athletic supporter and nothing else. And all of his football gear is on the floor at his feet. And he's looking at all of this equipment, and he had no idea how to put it on because he had never played football before. He didn't know how to put on a football uniform. He didn't even know how to begin. And so he's just standing there looking at this stuff. Surprised he didn't, like, think to prepare that before he got there. Nope. He, he, just, he, just, he just figured it out. And, and the other players were not of the mind to help. And him. the other players didn't look at him as a serious player. They didn't think he was a football player. They thought he was a track guy. And there were a lot of the guys on the team resented, resented what had happened in Mexico City. So they, you know, there are 80 guys on that team, and they all walked by him and left him just standing there. Only one other player offered to stop, one of the safeties, a guy named Ed Hayes. But there was another reporter, Billy Shevsky of the, Del- of the Philadelphia Daily News, and me were walking out, and we saw him. And he said, you know, what's up? And he said, I, I-, I don't know how to put this uniform on. And we said, are- you've got to be kidding, right? No, I don't. So Bill Shevsky and I <laughs> went down and – and dressed him for his first practice. We showed him where the hip pads went. We showed him where the thigh pads went. We told him how to lace up his, <laughs> told him how to lace up his shoulder pads. Um, and I remember him put trying to put on a helmet and saying, "Wow, this thing's heavy." <laughs> I mean, he had literally never been in a football uniform. And that first day of practice, yeah, and my first day of practice, I had to help John Carlos get dressed and get on the field. That's an amazing story. Yeah. Um, did he did he show any promise? Did he could he have made it? I will say no, probably not. Uh, it was just too big an adjustment. He had never he had never played organized football. It was just too big an adjustment. The Eagles were trying to do what the Cowboys did with Bob Hayes, and uh, had great success with Bob Hayes. Bob Hayes is in the Hall of Fame now, but the difference is Bob Hayes had played football. Bob Hayes was a football player who ran track. John Carlos was strictly a track guy who had never played football, and it was just too big an adjustment. He had the size and he had the speed, but he didn't understand the game. And he could, and he, in terms of catching the ball, he just, it, he just never got good. They had him, they had him, the coaches had him walking around with silly putty in both hands, and he had to walk around and just keep squeezing the silly putty to try and make his hands stronger so that he could catch the ball better. But it's just a matter of technique, and he could just never master it. If this were today, clearly what they would have done is they would have started from the day they drafted him, preparing him for the moment. I mean, they're so much smarter now that if you're going to invest. Even if it's whatever he was, an eighth round draft pick at the time, fifteenth, fifteenth, <laughs> fine. If it, even if it were, the, I mean, it was sort of like a Jordan Mailata thing, right? Mm-hmm. In a sense, and long before Jordan Mailata came to Eagles training camp, Jordan Mailata had studied and prepared and practiced and so on, and they would have done that now. Yeah, but what I, I learned, don't know if it would have ended differently. But yeah, they, a guy wouldn't have walked in saying like, "What are these shoulder pads about?" Right. But what I what I learned, and it was it was it was a good education for me watching that. I I I remember asking one of the assistant coaches, can he, is he going to make it? I mean, does he have a chance to make it? And the coach said no. He said because 
his style of – I said, what do you mean? The guy's a world-class – he's a sprinter, for heaven's sakes. And he's got the size, and he was willing to work. I will say that about John. John tried his absolute best to make the conversion. Mm-hmm. But as he was pointing out, he said his style of running just it just doesn't translate to football. You know, he's a long strider. And in football, it's not that kind of running. In football, it's all quick, uh, sharp cuts. Sure. And he said for him to run a pattern, to run an in route, you know, he has to almost come to a dead stop and then start again. He said, so that kind of running, it's great for the track, but it just doesn't translate to the football field. Mm-hmm. Mike in the Northeast uh, wants to talk to you for a moment. Hello, Mike. Hey, guys. How you doing? All right. Hey, Ray, tell me it ain't so, man. Tell me it's not, you're not leaving. Are you? I'm afraid so, Mike. Next weekend is you know, it for me. You know me. what? I, all, all these congratulations, so I, I can't do them, man. I'm, I'm too selfish. I, I, I want you to stick around. But uh, anyway, um, you know, best of luck. But I did create a Mount Rushmore of Philly sport writers. So I got you on there with Jim Barniak, Bill Lyons, and Stan Hockman. Wow. Um, you put me in, guys, you put, you, Mike, you put me in some very good company right there. I'll take well, that. Well, you know, I, I start, I'm 67 years old, so I started reading Jim Barniak, and you followed him, you know, right there, and uh, you, you know, you got me interested in sports and and uh, reading and and like being a fanatic Philly fan. And uh, the only consolation, I guess, is that that uh, your buddy Glenn's going to be hanging around, uh, which I'm a big fan of as well. So um, yes, Mike, he is. Hey, Glenn, I, yep. Glenn will carry on. And Glenn, we got a couple things in common. I think we both have sons that were the same age that went through schooling in Boston. Yeah. And I also have uh I also played Harry the Horse in um Guys and Dolls production. Did you really? Yeah. How about that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great role, wasn't it? It was fun. Yeah. Well, I gotta run, but thanks so much for the call. I appreciate it. Well, Ray. <laughs> hey. Somebody I did I ask you this question yesterday? Somebody said Ray's written plays, would Ray ever act on stage? Did I ask you that yesterday? You did ask me that. Okay. And the answer is no. Somebody else asked I was in a couple of high school plays, but I I, I know enough no I know enough to know that that isn't the place for me. Okay. Somebody said who who would Ray have play him in a movie? Oh, I know. Well, my wife my wife has already told me. Oh yeah? And she wants Bradley Cooper. She wants Bradley Cooper to play you in a movie, or she she no she, she both she, she wants she wants she Bradley wishes, Cooper to play me. She and, would like to wake up next to Bradley Cooper. Yeah, and she and she wants Bradley Cooper too. <laughs> she thinks it would be good casting, but it would even be better if he came home with me. Yeah. I see. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you know they can they can all have their wishes, can't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, listen, my friend, this has been so much fun today and just, uh, zoomed by and we get to do this, uh, one more weekend. We got one more weekend. Uh, next Saturday, I know there's going to be a big party here, uh, with guests and we're going to endeavor to do the show as people are slicing cake and, uh, cracking open champagne around us. You, mm-hmm. you game for that? Uh, yeah, it sounds like it's going to be fun. Okay. And then next Sunday, just you and me and, and I have had. And this is not an exaggeration. Hundreds of people say, so the last tell us your story is Ray. Um, and it is. I mean, what we, we've been doing bits and pieces of it, but your your story, I just want to sit around and chat with you and, and get your story and, and just relive sometimes, and we'll do that next Sunday. Okay. Okay. You know, it's going to be emotional. It's going to be emotional for be, me. It's going to be two old guys blubbering. Uh, that's how I'm building the show. I I suspect and fear that it may come to that, yes. And you know what? 
I'm okay with that. If that's what it is, that's what we do. I agree. I'm not going to be embarrassed about that. Dan Wilson produced. He is sticking around as am I. Leading off Phillies pregame coming up next right here on 94 WIP.